She's awaiting your rescue. I'll be your guide. Perfect. That was never in doubt. And what I think is really great is how uh, they cast uh, Watto to do the English dub. Thank you. Do you know who they actually cast? You know who does. You were just listening to the trailer. Do you know who that was doing the voice? Well, that's what's so funny is I was watching the trailer and all these celebrity names come up and I'm like... Which one? I don't... (laughs) I have no idea. Because I saw the movie before they cast the dub. Yeah. And I was like, DeVito's just sitting by the phone, I assume. Right? Like, you know. Sure. Right? Like, you know. Who played the heron? Take a guess from that cast list. I didn't, I didn't, I saw it go by and I was like... Just guess. A celebrity? Yeah. Yeah. A huge celebrity. A huge celebrity. A-list Charlie Day. That would make more sense. He'd make more that sense. Would make more sense. Probably just because he said DeVito. Any, yeah. any Glenn name, Howard. Any name you say is <laughs> going to make more in. sense. Um, someone who's got a real froggy voice. Let's make it clear. Doesn't. From listening to the dub trailer, he nails the voice, right? He does yeah. a great the job. The guy nails the voice. I, I mean, it's the I, last guy you would think is capable of doing that voice. I haven't seen the dub, but from the trailer, from the trailer it sounds, sounds like, like okay, he did a good I got job. it. Chris Pratt. Oh, you don't know either. No. It's going to blow your mind. Because on paper, you're like, it's kind of a Chris Pratt where they're like, why did you cast that guy? Right. But then, of course, the guy actually He's not going to do the voice. Professional. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. <laughs> that would make more Who sense. Did the Wind Rises. Yeah, that yeah, would make more sense. sense. Do you, can we tell you? Who? Robert Pattinson. No yes. way. Yes. That's Pattinson. That and he does it. Bob? Yeah, Bob. Bobby. Bobby P. Our wow. own. Now, he, Bobby he did Pat suck Pat? on like 10 vapes at once yeah. before every line reading. Well, his tour himself. You can hear it in Wait, the performance. That honestly makes me really like Robert Pattinson. Of course. As it should. As should most of his career decisions yeah. for the last yeah. 10 years. But I'm just saying, like, that's cool. But I they agree. announced him, and everyone's like, here's another fucking Chris Pratt situation. He's going to show up and be like, I'm the heron. <laughs> or he'll do a weird voice, but it won't be the right weird voice. And he clearly was like, no, I'm going to copy the voice, the original yeah, voice. I'll do what this guy I'll do doing. that in English. The uh, real That's guy cool. being uh, Isn't that Masaki Suda. Cool? Oh, I love this movie. I love this movie. This movie has no quotes page. No. And it has no tagline. So the... The, the uh, tagline was like, the new film from Hayao Miyazaki, the right? The excitement when I did the Watto voice opening was just because David had been uh, verging on a breakdown as JD and I scrubbed through the trailer with captions on trying to find any line... Well, because work. Uh, we, me, Griffin, and Ben. Yes. We, Griffin, Ben, and I. Well said. We saw the movie yesterday together. We saw it together. Obviously, we went subs, not dubs. Mm-hmm. And it's such... I don't even know if you can see it with dubs right you now. You can. Can you? Okay. You can. Angelica has like two, or one or two showtimes a day are dubs. The rest are subs. Right. But the dubs are just like the, a guy just comes to the front of the screen and just sort of it's yells every line. <laughs> It's bad. He's Patterson there. shows up and he does all the popcorn. voices. Yeah. You all saw it together. We saw it together. And I think it's an overwhelming movie experience, personally. Mm-hmm. And so I, there's lines that stick out, but we could not be sure that we had them verbatim. No, no. of course not. But JD and I were scrubbing through on our phones the trailer playing at like five seconds yeah. apart <laughs> in a cycle. And David truly, JD said, is this the moment the podcast breaks up? We got a lot to do today. Yeah. I don't want to talk if about you're this. Looking- it's easy, light... This is always the lightest podcasting day of the year for us, a JD doubleheader. If you're looking at the cast list uh-huh. and you're ranking it by the American cast list. Sure, by fit? By, right, fit for Heron. Ham, oh. Hamill is top. Yeah. For like, who's doing the Heron but voice? Hamill plays Grand Uncle? Correct. It makes a ton Will, of sense. Willem Dafoe is second. He plays the Pelican. I would say Dafoe actually makes number fine, one most fine. sense. But those two are at the top, right? Then I would say 
Batista, Batista, right? Who plays the Parrot King, which is perfect casting. That makes which total is, sense. Great casting. Yeah, but you know, you could see him busting out a heron. Yeah, uh, and he was the visual inspiration for the guy sure. inside. Uh, then Bale. Yeah, Bale, more known for voices. Now I'm going to throw something at you. I think Florence Pugh is more of a read for the heron than Robert Pattinson. The woman sounds like she smoked a thousand cigarettes. I love Pattinson, and Pattinson obviously has tremendous range, but I've also never heard him do a voice that in any way approximates this. Whereas Pugh makes vocal choices. Pugh basically played the heron in Oppenheimer. She did. But I think that's the thing that's interesting. heron. (laughs) I think, number one, Mm-hmm. Uh, a thing that I've constantly been reminded of in my career is that people who love acting mm. love to do interesting things, yes. right? Yes. And then also, there is a this is something that I really want to get into in talking about this movie mm-hmm. is that there is a certain uh, the Miyazaki bell rings and people show up. Yes. Oh yeah, it's to, like hard to say no. And this is final right. film. There it's are almost lot, rude. To you say have no. big names. I mean, I was just looking the what was it? They're big names in like one line parts in this dub because people are like last chance. Yes. And Dan so, Stevens and Tony Revolori and Mamadou Afi, I think, play the like um random other parakeets. The chorus of the parakeets. Right. 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 Like these are real actors. Yes. Um, I can talk to you a little bit more about this when we sort of get into things, but um I did a lot of subtextual work to watch this movie. Mm-hmm. I wanted this to be the full experience. So I put in a lot of work. Uh, it was happening sort of just anyways in my life. It's not really something you do for this podcast no. normally. But it's a little you weird. Just show up, sunglasses on, go, what movie were we talking about today? <laughs> what is this? Uh, <laughs> we're talking about what? Billy I Lynn? don't watch movies. Yeah, sure. That's for g- nerds. Yeah. What, what, what are we rewatchabling today? I can't believe they let you ride the motorcycle into the building. Into the building. Into the studio. What if I told you they didn't? Wow, you're such a rebel. I don't follow rules. This guy's such a heron. The the heron voice, you've nailed it, is closest to Defoe as Green Goblin. Yeah, sure. Right. In the realm of voices that exist. True. Just the Spider-Man. I think Hamill has to be top because he's actually the master of a thousand voices. Okay, sure. But to getting what I was going to say is I did an entire Miyazaki rewatch before this film. Mm -hmm. And And several books. And re- yeah, that was happening before okay. you guys asked me to do this. You, you and read then it's Starting dovetails. Point and uh, Turning Point. Turning Point I also read books Miyaz- I, I cite a lot on those episodes. I right. also read Miyazaki World. And then. I don't know that one. Uh, it's like. Uh, it's about a kid who gets sucked into a weird other dimension. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a. Oh, I've seen this cover. Yeah. It's fine. I mostly read it for the first part, which is more biographical. Uh, I was more interested in that. A lot of it is like thematic breakdowns of the films, which is like interesting, but I was more interested in sort of primary sourced biography stuff. And then I was reading already stuff about um, Japanese cinema and the history of Japanese cinema and um, story stuff related to that that I also want to talk about today. Mm. But that is all to say, this is the first time that I, uh, in this rewatched, I did all dubs. Oh, interesting. I'd never seen any of the dubs. Mm. And so I did all of the dubs in chronological order. Which do you think is the best dub? Um, You know, it's so interesting because they have a lot of recurring cast. Mm-hmm. Um, the dub that I didn't like was Porco Rosso. Oh, Keaton. see, I mean, I just think Keaton's unbelievable. I think it's such a weird, I think it's so... I've definitely heard that dub. The movie has such a uh, expressiveness and such a, like, mm-hmm. a, a, a fancy, and Keaton's playing it so low that it creates a, a weird friction to me. Yeah. I, I will say, I think 
Howl's Moving Castle actually is a really good dub. The Howl's dub is surprisingly good. And the crystal Bale casting. Is Howl. Ba- Bill is great, but also the crystal casting, you're like, oh, crystal shit. And is, then Crystal nails it. Crystal is, is so good. You're so I ready for that to get cloying, and then it works. I think all the dubs are very impressive. Yes. Like, I think they are very good. They do a good job with those. Yeah, they really care. I know. I yeah, exactly. No, I mean, obviously, excluding the now now forgotten Mononoke. early dubs, right? right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, I mean, I've listened to the Ponyo dub a million times because I watch it almost every day. But you're talking the Disney era G Kids now yeah. acquired, yeah. right? Yeah, you know, yeah. The second really, wave dubs. Yeah. They they did them right. I mean, here's the other thing I like about the Pattinson thing. It does kind of feel like, and. G-Kids wants to get the best cast they can. Yeah. I'm sure everyone's throwing themselves at this because it's the last chance to do a Miyazaki dub, what have you. It does feel a little like Pattinson being like, I'm a big enough star that they'll let me do this, and if I do it, I ensure that it sounds like the character rather than anyone else coming in and trying to put their own spin on it. I like that idea. I I, I hope that that's where it came from. Like, I, me- like, I like the idea that he's in there protecting it. I also could see a version of it where he's just like, yeah, I want to just like, I want to go, I want to do it. I've always wanted to play a hero. I want to do it like for real. Yeah. Um, But I like the idea, I like the idea that people are coming to protect this thing. Totally. I mean, I I was going back and forth between subs and dubs when we were doing those episodes years ago. Yeah. And it is interesting to watch. And I'll do this sometimes too with like the voiceover stuff I've done. Now with streaming, you can toggle between different countries. Yeah. And it's interesting to see like, which people go, my job is to do that characterization in English, and which people go, I was cast, I'm doing my take on this. Well, it's interesting, I was watching the Wind Rises dub, Mm -hmm. and there's a wide variance of the type of performance that people are giving. Yes. That is the strangest dub to me. Yeah. Well, that's also the one I think I... set in Japan, it's the weirdest one in a way, like these are Japanese Characters, but then the, the Herzog performance is kind of astonishing. Cool. Yes, but then there's like um, uh, what's his name from the Office? Uh, Which one? Krasinski. Oh, Krasinski. Yeah. He's, Fuck, I forgot that. He's doing a lot more of a animation. He's doing thing. like a DreamWorks voice. Yeah, where he's like, yeah. Well, it's time for me to go to work today, and I love. <laughs> and then he'll be in scenes with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's doing a very like realistic, like you right. know empathetic performance he, and then kind those things don't actor, yeah, yeah. Uh, Gordon Levitt's kind of doing the Pattinson thing of like I place my stardom in this spot yeah. to preserve the way this character should be played that's also the dub where there was an article that was I think we talked about this uh, when we did the Totoro mm-hmm. episode but like there was an article that was about um, it was louding how uh, uh, wonderful it was that they were able to adapt the the all, the script into um, English in a way that um, actually they adapted it to make it more appealing to an American audience. Right. And they were saying it in a positive way, but then when they gave all the examples, they like hurt my heart because it was yes. taking these like very um, Miyazaki, very um, interesting lines and turning them into like, you know, I've always loved you. And I'm like, no, the first thing, like even if it doesn't culturally translate, like let it be that so that there's some mystery of how this all connects and what what the meanings are so that we can sort of glean the sort of cultural reverberations of it versus being like, nah, you know, they're just saying they love each other. Isn't there like a big 90s Disney renaissance guy who oversaw all those adaptations for a while? I don't know. Not yeah, Don know Hall, that. but someone like 
that. I can't remember. David, you seem so excited. I, well, I think we should introduce our podcast. It's I'm Blank worried that we're too, David. you know, um, right, locked into this. Yes, two in the weeds already. Yeah, I'm Griffin. Yeah, yeah, I'm David. It's a podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want. And sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce. Baby, this is a mini series on the films of Hayao Miyazaki that was done four years ago that we are now concluding with his final film. Uh, he says he's going to make another one. Does he actually? Yeah, he, and everyone says that he'll continue making films he'll continue until he work cannot. Until he dies. Yeah. But do we think that is possible? Anything is possible. As, as Kevin Garnett once said, anything, is, anything possible. is possible. He's been just kind of upfront about, like, even though I've made this movie that I know is very much about a man's legacy and what he leaves behind and, like, saying goodbye. Yeah, I'm fucking back in the studio. I've got lots of ideas. Like, you know, wow. I'm Hayao Miyazaki. Yeah, he's already... There's what our, am I supposed to do? There was another project that it was either going to be that or this. Okay. And I think theoretically it's like, oh, now I'm going to start working on that one. His Alita he'll, battle. He'll, he's he'll also... tinker away. Yeah. What was the other project? Uh, it's like, I think like the earwig and the witch or something. No, that got made. Right. His, that was, his son made Yeah. It. Oh. That was the CGI one it's, that people did not like? It's not very good. Because he was debating whether to do that or yeah. this. And then his he had his son do that, that. That's a full Alita situation. It's an Alita situation? Yes. Go, go Where ahead. Cameron was developing Alita and Avatar. Right, yeah. And yeah, was yeah, like, sure. I don't know which one I'm going to do. It's one or the other. And I'll do one and then immediately do the other. And then he did Avatar. And he was like, actually, Robert Rodriguez is going to do Alita. And yeah, right. Someone else. Can. I'm trying to find yeah, the I name. I forget what the other title is then. I apologize. Uh, it might be that though. But I also, like, maybe he's just in there and he's like, I've always wanted to do like a remake of fucking, you know, Night Moves. That, you know, Gene Hackman movie. How great would that be? <laughs> exactly. You know what I mean? Like, who knows yeah. what it is? Uh, so we <laughs> I've really been looking to get into live action. I'm done with animation. <laughs> right. We interrupted you this. introducing what your podcast yeah, is. I'm going to do Thor 5. Uh, finally, yeah, I got my foot in the door. Yeah, he gets How signed on to do fucking Eternals 2. Yeah. yeah. We've heard your feedback. You want the Thor movies to be less goofy. Hayao Miyazaki is making his live action debut. J.D. Amato is our guest returning to the show. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. For what's basically become your annual slots. Yeah, in December, we try to get a couple records in yeah. all at once. No, I'm really excited. and I, I, It was an honor that you guys asked me to come back for this movie. This was pinned like six months ago, I want to say, when we were like, oh, it's finally coming out. And I went, I agree. Oh, we just, we should have, JD should come on a date. All this says Lasseter and Doctor. All, everything I'm finding. I think you're right that there was like a Don I'm, Hall I'm type. trying to remember who it is because it's a big figure in animation who had the attitude not that, of, yeah, of what it. you're saying of just like, I'm really excited and I take this seriously and I want to do it well. Yeah. But he put a little too much of his own spin on it, arguably. Yeah. Um, but uh, I do I do love the Ponyo dub. I'm used to it now. Very used to it. Uh, I've seen the Spirited Away dub several times, I think, because that was... Yeah, right. Yeah. That might be it, though. I'm not very familiar with the other dubs. Have I seen the Kiki dub? I get, we probably talked about all this on the episode. doesn't yeah, matter. Probably. I yeah. would like to see this dub. I'm intrigued. Yeah. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to talk to Miyazaki. Mm. Yeah. Um, there's a lot to talk about with this movie. Nah, this movie's fucking <laughs> an inch deep. Nothing going on with this one. Also, I, I'll say it. Mm. I, I've, I've, I've heard that there that you know, the Totoro episode, maybe there was, people felt like there was too many bits. I don't think so. We're going to make this a bit light episode. You yesterday said, perhaps on the record, this is bit free. No bits. Packaged as bit free. No bits. Stamp the label on it. 
Well, maybe well, squeeze maybe a little bit in the end. But listen, no, for all we're no truly. There's so serious. much that I want to talk about here. Right. Um, okay, we we saw this yesterday, as you said, in the basement of Angelica. The Angelica trains whipping around us on all sides. Theater shaking. The Angelica, to, of course, the downtown theater in New York that is so committed to providing a mediocre viewing experience. They've done everything they can. But I they think can. it's a great... It's, it's they a, do have good it, popcorn. It's also a great way to watch a movie because it's a, a, a very old theater. You descend yes. escalators down and you yeah. see all of the... They have the little um, names of the movies above the theater number. It, it has that old-fashioned quality that's nice. That's and they true. keep the doors open until the film starts. So you can sometimes sort of, even after it starts. Yeah. Yes. But you can sort of see people watching and you're like, this is a place of cinema. And I will say there was moments during the film where I was like, ooh, there's this sort of ominous rumble happening in them. And I was sometimes, like, I had to remind myself. Right. And you're like, and then you hear someone saying like, this train is too yeah. Coney Sometimes Island. it syncs up perfectly. Just yeah. to be clear, the Angelica, yes. a theater in a basement that also features a B, D, F, and M stops. It's underneath Broadway Lafayette Station. Yeah, but it's, there's it's, the, uh, it's MTA like, subway. It feels like it's sandwiched in between two train tracks. <laughs> there's will be 5.1. Right. Yes. And Angelica has 5.1.1. The extra speaker five, is the train. 5.1.BDFM. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you're watching a movie and there is this rumble and you're like, yeah, you know, that's part of the movie. And then Correct. you're like, right, no, it's the subway. The but, other thing is sometimes the, the train passes and suddenly there's a stillness that feels profound. Also profound. Look, this is this kind of stuff Miyazaki probably wants you thinking about. Yes. Absolutely. The, well, the theater will briefly achieve a state of ma when the train has left the station. There's two questions that I want to start with <laughs> yeah. to open this discussion. The first is, I would like to know where everyone is at with Miyazaki in their life. And uh, David and Ben and I were talking about this before, is that I, I re-listened to a couple episodes which of... Which ones? Uh, I don't remember which ones. Jeez, fine. Of the I guess they rocked. <laughs> what the, what <laughs> is this energy? so good. David's energy is unbelievable today. <laughs> No, what episodes? You don't remember. I okay, don't remember. Okay. I think I... Uh, Emily's episode. Okay, she was on Castle in the Sky. Castle in the Sky. Castle in the yeah. Sky. And then one or two others. I forget which one. Ehrlich, maybe? Ehrlich was on Mononoke. Okay. Mononoke. Right? No, Ehrlich no, was on... He was on, on Howl's Moving Castle. Okay. I sort of have Griffin them on McElroy the background. Griffin McElroy was on Mononoke. Okay. Mm -hmm. I sort of have them on the background, so it's like I they, they're sort of ephemeral in my mind a little bit. Sure. But one of the themes I picked up on... So, famously, mm. it's been long since recorded that... David, in early in our friendship, referred to Griffin as I as dumb animation nerds. Of course. I believe is the... was the, No, I did that on this podcast because you two were going on about whatever the fuck. And I'll then, tell you what we were going on then, about. The use of 3D in Coraline. Oh no, my God. It was in reaction. No, no, no. Okay, this is what it was. <laughs> wow, this is what... You're going to have to release an apology. Yep. No, I won't. Yes, uh, you will. No, I won't. Yes, you uh, will. No, I won't. And we already yes, did this fucking discussion the last time you were on for but, you know, Caroline, right? Like, because that, you always feel like episode? you have to defend it. I don't have to defend anything. But then on that episode... <laughs> yes, you will. Who's the California Raisins guy? I was... Will Vinton. <laughs> Where you're like, Will Vinton. I'm like, I don't know who that is. And the That's... two of you are like, Will Vinton. And it's like, it's so hilarious. What? Play <laughs> dream, motherfucker. Leads into you being animated. A modern American tragedy. What a, what a disrespectful way to refer to Will Vinton. Who's the freaking California Raisins <laughs> He's guy? He's doing it again. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway. Oh, my God. Some fucking guy named Will Vinton. 
but it's it's just so funny because you're like, like you guys dared call us animation dorks. Anyway, I'm no, like, who's no, Will d- Vinton? You guys are like, you're dumb so animation nerds. Yeah, but right. then now in 2023, you're like, I don't know, the dumb raisin guy. <laughs> I didn't call him dumb. I called you dumb. <laughs> Some <laughs> dumb plasticine He's obviously a major fool. talent. <laughs> okay, but an interesting thing <laughs> about um, our dumb animation nerdum. Sure. Griffin's a Disney boy. Yeah. He grew up on the Disney Pixar. Yeah. That's his meat and potatoes. I'm less a Miyazaki guy than the two of you are. Yeah. You're not I, a Miyazaki guy. I don't think you are a Miyazaki guy. No, I'm not. Because you've not. really not really seen hardly any of them before we did the pod. Before we did the pod, I had only seen Spirited Away and Totoro. And I don't feel like they touched your heart in quite the way. Well, clearly, I mean, had they touched your heart, you would have gone yes. to the other ones. Right? Uh no, t- I mean, Totoro, I still struggle with, although I owed another watch. Spirit Which Away. Which is wild because I think it's like the greatest animated film of all time. I just rewatched oh, it with I, my daughter. Her, her well, I can talk about me. You, yeah. you talk about you. Um, and then Spirited Away, I didn't like when I saw it the first time because I was uh, dumb, uh, unintelligent, not a dumb animation nerd, which would have helped me. Uh, I wasn't approaching it from the right mind. And then when we rewatched it for the show, I loved it. Right. But I do, I do think I, uh, I still struggle with him in certain ways. And there are films of his I, I wholeheartedly love. And there are other films of his I do kind of fight to feel. Um, I'll also say, I mean, I think I had a big Japanese animation block for a long time. Yeah. A lot of it was just right. sensibility and style. And I do think doing that series helped break that down a little bit. But But I also feel like post that I have gotten more into some other filmmakers. Right. Then perhaps uh, Miyazaki speaks to me specifically. That's I think that's a fascinating place to be, and that's a really yeah. I think that's a really interesting place to come to this movie. But, with. but I think I mean I there is no part of me that questions him being one of the most important artists Who in the medium like? ever. I mean I love Satoshi Kon. Sure. I I'm gonna butcher his name, but the Suzume your name weathering with you mm-hmm. guy I love. I mean that's like a, 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 Shinkai. Shinkai is, is like a major uh, run for me. And I've been watching more shows and stuff, but I mean, it's not like I, I'm not. Uh, it's not your. Yeah. No, but know. I think that's a really interesting place to come to this because this movie is. Yeah. I think there's a lot of I think this movie works best when viewed through all of the context around it that built up to this film. Well, this is why I wanted to say three of us saw it together. The two of you were crying. Yes. Right. The lights come up and both of you were like, I, I cried multiple times. Me, me AF when I saw it right. as well. Yes. And I, I immediately was like, I'm still trying to puzzle this out. Yeah. Not like I don't like this, but I do feel like I struggled to get my head around this movie, which I felt with certain Miyazaki films yeah. when we were watching them. And some of them I've rewatched, by the way, since the series. Some of them I've not, and I owe them rewatches. That series was also happening at a bad time in my life that I think was reflected somewhat in the episodes. Mm. Uh, well, yeah, I mean... Well, you as well, yes. Yeah, that's the... I think I, I think I brought this up on the uh, cursed uh, talking the walk last year, and it didn't make it to the cut. But I, the, we, we never I think it did. I think it did make it to the cut. I, I don't think it did. I, I think, think it's it important because oh, everyone listened to that. Episode. Well, no, yes. that was a scripted episode, and we we just read what was on exactly. The page. That episode was fictional, by the but way. But the Totoro episode was when we recorded it. It was shortly after my sister had passed away unexpectedly. Yeah. Yes, and that movie means a lot to me, and I think it's such a pure depiction of. Um, family and especially siblinghood. Yes, yeah. And so I, in retrospect, I'm like, oh yeah, of course I You're wanted to engage more in bits and all that because like right. it was it was hard to it t- Miyazaki touches me in such a 
visceral way. Same. And what I think is beautiful about him and I think can be hard, especially for this film. In mm-hmm. this film, he's quoted as saying, like, I don't even really understand all of it. Right. Which I think is a really beautiful thing is that this a lot of this is just um, things that he's pulling from within himself. And if they touch you, I think they really can touch you. Yeah. And, Which there were certainly uh, moments that got to me. Um, and I am not looking for like a metaphor codex. You know, it's not like I was sitting there being like, ah, I can't crack this one onto the next yeah, one. Yeah, right. And I also, I've like come to understand the flow of his films being different than so much of what I watch and needing to process them in a different way and open yourself up and right. engage with them in a different way. And some of them, it does work for me. And other ones, I, I without diminishing them, feel like I haven't gotten there yet on that one, right? Yeah. And this definitely felt like one of those for me. Uh, I mean, I, two things I kept on thinking about a lot while watching it. Um, I I think it is weirdly similar to Wendell and Wilde um, in an approach of guys who are just like, do I make another movie ever again? This process sure. takes like seven years and it keeps on having these stops and starts. And Wendell and Wilde, similar to this, feels like a a, a buffet line movie where he just keeps on putting stuff on the plate. David, your letterbox log was to this effect. That like the first half fear. of the movie. Right. Well, that's why I'm watching. You're it. like, you don't want to just like maybe go back to the table, eat some of this, and then maybe you can go back for seconds. Right. And it's like, no, we're we're putting this on, we're putting this on, we're putting this on. Can you resolve all of this? Right. Wendell Wild, a movie that like overstimulates most people right. and they just tap out like 30 minutes in. And I think it's a, a kind of a messy masterpiece, but it does ultimately work for me. I was watching this getting overwhelmed by like how much it was loading on. But I think there's some really interesting context to when you understand how the film was made yes, and what it was made that then answers some of the questions of that. And I understand, admittedly, a small percentage of that. And then talking after the movie, yeah. you you filled in more of it. And I've been excited to talk about it now today. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking about just in terms of my struggles with Miyazaki sometimes, I think in a certain way, philosophically, the filmmaker... I don't want to say philosophically, but in their relationship to their dialogue with like humanity and existence and the world, like the biggest concepts. He is weirdly similar to Werner Herzog for me. Sure. Where it's like he's staring straight into the sun. Yes. There is like a very sober, like, this is what it is. I'm not mincing words, right? And then Werner Herzog works on a much more literal level very often, although there are obviously zags from that. And Miyazaki translates that mostly into feeling then, right? But they are about this, like, we cannot hide from this. This is the conversation that we are in. And Herzog, I find him weirdly relaxing, even when he's directly staring at the things I find most upsetting in the world. There's something about Miyazaki filtering that through sort of like dream language. Right. And obviously his films are very dreamlike, where I sometimes find them too painful to deal with. And it's similar to like Wind Rises, which is an episode where I completely spiraled. It is a movie I think is great, but I was like, I cannot handle this. I cannot handle this. Right. And this movie at times was like crystal clear to me on an emotional level. And I was like, this is hitting me really hard. Other times I was really locked into just the beauty of what was happening. And other times I was like, I understand what he's talking about here and I like need to leave this conversation. Right. I can just not handle it. I'm too weak. 
it, it we, has the feeling of yeah, we, when I wake up in the morning and there's a dream that doesn't make sense to me, but it was clearly I, poking at a bruise that is very raw for me. And I'm like, I will get no resolution on this. This is now just conjured up feelings that cannot be resolved in my real life. have to poke the bruise. Griffin, what if I told you, I will be your guy? Well, this is what I'm waiting for. Now, D David, what is your relationship with Miyazaki? I love Hayao Miyazaki's films very deeply. I've seen them all many times. Did you watch, were you supposed to them as a kid? Or as an adult? No, not at all. I, yeah. I think it's almost certainly me seeing Spirited Away in theaters when I'm a 16-year-old cineast. And being like, this is my jam. You yeah. Know? That was your first I'm, one? Can't remember if it was that or um I think it might have I might have seen one okay, but it like probably on TV, like sure, on tape right. or whatever. And it didn't have quite the impact. But I just as someone who is not an anime fan, mm -hmm, right? Like right. never, never got into it. Apart from Pokemon, of course. We gotta, love, gotta catch them all. Shout out Diglett. Mm -hmm. Gotta catch them all. I'll just shout out a different Pokemon every week. Great. Uh, Every week that we do the uh, this episode, yeah, yeah, uh, like this is know. the new format of the show going into twenty four. By the way, uh, yeah, Pokemon recap and Miyazaki You're existential crises. Yeah. Um, you just sound kind of like the heron today. You're I, I had a cold, and this is and, I, and yesterday I was talking so much because I was at the critic circle, humble brag, and I was yelling uh, results to people because I'm the counter. Mm. You're the counter? I am. I'm I'm the counter. He gets results. Been the counter for I literally get results. Do you wear like a barrister's wig? I wear a barrister's wig. No, why would I yeah. wear a barrister's wig? Because barrister's the barrister's barrister. What are you talking about? They have to count. Why would you? I don't know, because you take your job seriously. <laughs> yeah, because you care about the sanctity of the process. Yeah. I imagine uh, it's all of you in a an underground chasm around a, a marble circular table. <laughs> You're in a barrister's why wig with an abacus. Yeah. And then people in cloaks hand you like pieces of sharp metal that right. account for votes. So and you, you go, one vote for it's that except instead of, the of a moon. chasm, we're in a sort of meeting room at the Film Society Lincoln Center. And instead of metal objects, we have pieces of paper that people have scribbled things on. But there is an abacus and you do wear a barrister. Jordan wearing. Hoffman brought an abacus one year as a joke and then two minutes in was like, yeah, get, uh, get this out of here. Yeah, You're surrounded back. with the skulls of past members of the org. Uh, of course, right? Andrew yeah. Saris uh, yeah. looks at us from a shelf. Uh, yeah. his, his body has been stuffed and mounted. Uh -huh. And then you um, decide who wins the Oscars. Right. And then we keep saying that. We're like, yeah. ha, 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 they shall win. Um... What was I saying? Oh, I love Miyazaki, obviously. But the big... I mean, I love him. I mean, you can listen to the past episodes. The big thing for me... Or don't. You don't think we should? I don't know. I, I did, but well, yeah, the, You're not clearly important. filled with regret. Yeah. Um, I am like a Miyazaki character. No regrets. Yeah. Uh, but I had. A, I have a daughter. Yeah. Uh, and uh, one of the first things I would watch with her when she was a little baby is there's something on HBO Max or whatever it's called now. Zaslav's, Max, Zaslav's House of Fun. Max is the one to watch when you want to watch HBO. What do you mean? Right. That's very easy to remember. It's called Zach's now. <laughs> the logo Zach is his little glasses. Uh, the logo is just that picture of him and Graydon Carter look like they're like two guys who just shot an elephant. You know, they're in like these white suits. At the con party while <laughs> yes. the strike's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why didn't anyone show up? I'm sorry. We can cut that out if it's going to affect any future business for you, me making fun of David Zaslav. I, I mean, think it'll be okay. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. Um, <laughs> Ben's my... Uh, you guys, I haven't told you. I Ben's my manager now. Yeah. Ben's your manager and you guys are pitching Zazlab hard. Yeah. You're like, here's a great project for you to sink money in and then never air. 
tax break. It's you're, like a producer. You're scenario. pitching Zaslav to Zaslav, right? You're pitching Zaslav tonight. <laughs> exactly. Um, people just haven't gotten to know you yet. Um, <laughs> the only reason to like you is they haven't heard you talk. There's a thing on HBO Max called like Miyazaki, like backgrounds essentially yes. that's just like a montage of like little landscapes oh, wow. with set to very plaintive Joe Hisashi movie music okay. uh, that I used to put on just to chill my daughter out when she was not really watching like narrative television mm. but you could just put on like pictures something that I was reading about something that I, I loved that's really beautiful yeah and something I was reading about was that um, Miyazaki agreed to license all of his stuff to the streamers to fund this movie right. yes uh, right, right. That Because this is the most expensive Japanese film ever made. Yeah. Um, uh, but now, my daughter uh, was Ponyo for Halloween. Uh, uh, Ponyo is the oh first movie God. she ever saw. She's seen it 8,000 times? I mean, she's seen it so many times. Uh, and she refers to every... Now, anytime... Like, when we were... what We watched um, Totoro recently. Yeah. And the little boy in that basically looks like the little boy in yeah. Ponyo. And she was like, Sosuke. That's Sosuke. And I was like, it's not, but sure. That's Sosuke. Go off. Uh, yeah, go off. I still think Ponyo is the easiest for a little kid because even Totoro it's, is a little more emotionally intense and Totoro the being mm -hmm. is, he's, you know, he's cool, but he's scary. He's like, scary. yeah, he's yes. kind of intense. I think Totoro has a lot of uh, adult POV of childhood, whereas Ponyo, you're like li living in even just how it's animated. It's like, it's, it's child brain. And it's so energetic. And yes. Like, yes. You know, filled with like laughter and screaming and yes. running and hugging and also things Ponyo she understands. Ponyo loves ham. Ponyo loves ham. Yeah. Uh, and of course, Katsuya he has Kondo. my ultimate crush yeah. in it. Mega babe, hottest woman in cinema Sosuke's ever. Mom. Sosuke's mom. <laughs> uh, Sosuke's, I, like, you don't remember this? She's super hot. She's this, so hot. Also, just this voice is a good and <laughs> just like some David kind of character like, yeah. TikTok montage of like Sosuke's <laughs> yeah. mom with like some guy screaming. And the number one drawn ten thousand. Right, you've You're, been waiting for it. The number one. <laughs> with your raspy voice, you sound like a monster truck announcer. <laughs> Start your engine. Sosuke's mom. mom. Sosuke's mom would do great at a monster truck rally. She drives like a, a demon. Ladies and gentlemen, rev your engines. The top five times when I cried during a Miyazaki film. <laughs> Coming in at number five. This is Macho Man David Sims. <laughs> uh, I cry. The thing, you know what really stands up? I cry at the end of Ponyo all the time. Sure. And I've seen it so many times at this point. I watch it with my daughter. It, and the end always gets me. Hmm. It's so powerful. And it's not even one of his more emotional yeah. endings. It's just so perfect. Absolutely. They, they kiss and then she turns into a girl. Um, anyway, I saw this film at its premiere, at the world premiere of the, you know, non-Japanese version of yeah. it. I was watching it with subtitles, obviously. Sure. But like the world premiere of this outside of Japan. It had come out in Japanese theaters already. Correct. It came yeah. out in the summer in Japan. And one of the coolest movies of all time with zero marketing. Zero trailer and just a poster that's just a heron. Yeah. The eye. Wasn't the poster just the close-up of the eye, it's basically? Like, it's like the heron in profile. Oh, you know, sure. It's like, yeah. yeah. And uh, I saw it at the Toronto International Film Festival opening night. Usually the opening night movie there is kind of like a, you know, crappy crowd pleaser. Sure. This is the boy and the heron. We're all seated at the Princess of Wales. Obviously, Miyazaki doesn't come. He doesn't fucking, no. you know, want it. So the, um, he was busy seeing American fiction. I think Toshio Suzuki came. He may not have even come because he's kind of old at this point. Like yes. a producer They're came out. Very, yeah. And basically was like, you know, 
Miyazaki-san is like so happy for you to see this film and we hope that you enjoy it. Like we worked very hard on it. Thank you and goodbye. You know, like that was yeah. it. Rather than the usual like, all right, let's bring up this guy plays Jim the fucker. Yeah. He's got two great scenes and here he is, you know, like for like right. 20 minutes. You Jim know. the fucker. I'm, Wait, what surprised. was that? The Jim the fucker didn't win any. Has each, The awards campaign has died this season uh, on the look, vine. Maybe he can get a, a sag nom and, you know, maybe restart it. Had you, Remind me who played Jim the fucker. I'm not going to tell you. Okay. If you don't know, you don't deserve to know. Okay. Um, David, uh, the had you stayed cold on any information coming out of Japan? Nothing. Okay. Like truly nothing. Yeah. Well, there wasn't much to know. No. Because they didn't release like that. No, but that's what I'm saying. Like when when it opened in Japan, there was a bit of a like, well, now if you want to dig online, you can find it. I could have gone to Reddit and found people basically in English saying like, hey, I've seen the film. I speak both languages. And like, here's what it's about or whatever. I did not do that. You were going in basically. They had released four promotional stills. And I think I had seen those once or twice. Sure. But that was it. Yeah. yeah. And I saw the film and I felt like Griffin initially of like, like an overburdened waiter. Right. You know, I don't know. How you want mozzarella to... sticks and spring rolls? Actually, maybe I do. You know, but yeah, being yeah. like, I, I'm trying to keep track of all this information so I can understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I started to worry like, look, I think this is interesting and very like stimulating, but maybe sure. this is going to be like a weird one. He's not, not going to pull it together. Yeah. Yes. And then he pulled it together so devastatingly well that I felt a fool right. for ha- ever having doubted him in the intervening two hours. You know, like just, just, just then. You have still only seen it the one time. No, I rewatched it. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. okay. That was my question. Yeah, yeah. And Thank I'm going to go see it again it. at BAM next week with my friend Rachel, who's desperate to get back on this podcast. Makes fun of me a lot, Rachel Sanders. Well, then we have her back on. All right, let's find a movie for her. I, I, or I mean, Heron too. She likes to make fun of me for not having her back on. It's a, it's a bit we have. Well, it sounds funny. Yeah, it is funny. Was it for a long her. time ago? Terminator. Wow. Long time Very long. Ago. Whoa. Year two. First year of BC proper. Dang. One BC. Wow. wow. Uh, I don't, how did it take nine years to get to that joke? It's all a joke. Um, David, I assume you're not going to try to take your daughter to this. This is not no, one. She no. Wouldn't, she wouldn't care for this. Yeah. Uh, no, we've yet to go to a film in theaters because she's too young. Though we're getting close. Well, so and I wonder. was sold out every showing. <laughs> Couldn't get through the crowd. She was dying to see it. I love the fire bodega. Claude, 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 Claude. That fucking movie. Uh, it's going to like win the Oscar this year or some bullshit. Not impossible. It's not impossible. This obviously could win. But yeah. I, Spider-Verse could win. But yeah. there's a world where Elemental wins. Yeah. And we just fold it Over up. Over the boy and the heron. We fold it up. We call it picture wrap on movies. I did not see Elemental. It's bad. No? No. Why not? Uh, Racist against the fire people, I guess. Yeah. You think they should stay in their part of town. You just don't like them. You, or you're you racist against the water people. Ooh, Do you think they're hoity? <laughs> Uh, uh, now it's I'm trying to figure out what mapping is, game Griffin's playing. I'm playing the mapping game the, the, related to you, does. the mapping game that they do that, that doesn't oh, really? My favorite joke about Elemental now is when people say they haven't seen it for me to be like, yeah, well, that's because you're a racist, which is the message of the movie, I guess. I bet Fire you don't even people. think about how dirt people <laughs> would take that news. A thing, the movie doesn't even really bother itself with the dirt people. No, they're kind of like, oh, they're trees, I guess, anyway. Right. You know, the movie the, almost has a racist attitude of saying, like, the dirt people are kind of less and important. The air people barely get any fucking rope either. It's, an, it's a movie about elemental people, <laughs> and yet people it only cares bossy, about two David. out of four what are you elements. Talking about? 
The air people are bossy and they love their air ball. Yeah, they play a sport that's like air basketball. I don't know. The whole thing. I, just can't, like, I can't believe this, to this anymore. I mean, Stop Dave, telling me. David's review, his letterbox letter line is the best summation of the movie ever, which was ca- catastrophic metaphor collapse. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Anyway. Ben, what's your Miyazaki? Yeah, how you feel about Hayao Miyazaki? I had never watched any of his movies until we covered him on the show. And Uh, I have... What's that? No, I was just going to say, JD walking out, the lights come up, and he's wiping away tears, and he goes, I don't think a Miyazaki movie has ever actually made me cry before. And you wiping away tears go, uh, not me. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, yeah, this movie definitely got me. I'll just say that I have... Uh, since we did the miniseries, revisited Kiki. Yeah. It's about life in the big city, man. Kiki is such an incredible movie. Kiki the movie where we came in to record on a Saturday afternoon and Ben was watching it on the couch weeping. (laughs) It's uh, it's such a gentle... I mean, it's there's there's so much to like about Kiki's delivery service. Yeah. And then I recently showed my girlfriend Spirited Away for the first time. Oh, sure. Um, And she... As someone who is so anti-cartoons, yeah. right, was like, wow, I can't believe that something can be so deep. She's a bit of yeah. an Eddie Valiant in general. I don't know what that means. It's uh, Bob Hoskins' character in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, who is prejudiced against tunes, much as JD is prejudiced against the fire people. Thank you for <laughs> translating, David. <laughs> They should only have working class jobs. They can't make art. That's for sure. I don't even know the context <laughs> the thing of is, this. Everything I'm saying is in that. We're movie. not exaggerating. I'm him. not taking the ball and running We're with almost it. Almost doing direct like, quotes. That's the movie's vibe. Fire people shouldn't make glass. Obviously, the movie's vibe is that these beliefs are wrong, but it is that these beliefs are prevalent in elemental society. Fire people, which is highly stratified and bureaucratic, to selling embers. Which is also her name. Sure. sure. And keeping flames alive. They shouldn't make glass. How dare you even suggest it? I just haven't seen this movie. So I just Katie don't Rich know. likes to say that the, the water guy, the main water guy in Elemental, is the biggest cuck in the history <laughs> I would have of cinema. That. And it's true. <laughs> anyway. It's weird they didn't cast Jason Clark to play him. So. It's Mamadou Athi, who, of course, is also in this movie. Yeah. The dub. David, I now have a question for you okay. that I'd like you to turn on your professional okay. critic brain for. Here we go. Put the barrister right. away. Hannah Rosen is interviewing me on the Atlantic podcast. Well, professional. I feel like I've done this before is in our friendship where I really like to ask questions about your critical process because I think mm. it's fascinating to me. Oh, thank you. I feel like at many lunches, I've been like, walk me through like when you sure, see a movie, what do you do? Right, the practicality of my job, right. So for a movie like this, that is the final film of a filmmaker. Possibly. Possibly. You know, everyone around him has proclaimed this to probably be the case. He's he's an older man just to be, you know, to to get his age on the record. It's 82. And and he'll be 83 in a couple weeks. Quite a challenge to get this movie finished. Yes. He Uh, He works methodically, slowly, however you want to put it. And yeah. so that's only going to hurt him more if he wants to pump some shit out about, you know, Thor fighting fucking Ms. Marvel or whatever Which Thor 5 will be about. time for Better Ray Bell to show up on in the Marvel Cinema. Oh, yeah, that would be nice. But What's as a question? critic, how do you approach um, 
personal criticism of a film like this, do you fold in all of the context and subtext in the career that builds up to this? Do you try to hold that in abeyance and keep this to be a singular object that you're looking at? I'm obsessed with context. My reviews are loaded with it. It possibly could, I, I maybe should do less of it, but I am a, you know, as anyone who listens to this podcast knows, I am mostly interested in what the filmmaker is trying to tell me about themselves and their, you know, experience. You know, I'm an auteurist, whatever you want to call me, right? You know, like, uh, I'm not, like, it's amazing when I read my reviews back. I'm like, I'm not even mentioning performances I like because I'm so into mm-hmm. getting into what the artist is trying to say with this movie or whatever, you know, like. Yeah. Yeah. I so, mean, no, I'm, I'm heavy. I haven't written my review for this movie yet. So. Oh, wow. Oh, fascinating. I wrote a capsule for my TIFF coverage, but. Oh. Am I wrong in my assessment of, like, I, I. This movie primarily to me plays as a what am I leaving behind film and through the prism of like also using that to explore like how did I get here? What did I think I was trying to do? What am I actually what have I actually been? Yeah. What happens after me? You know? Well, so an interesting question I'd like to pose that's sort of related to that idea is how much do we think we should be listening to or believing artists when they tell us about their work. Well, this is a really because I think that's a question, I, I I think that's a big question about Miyazaki as a whole yeah. and filmmakers in general. And I, my opinion to a certain extent, as someone who fancies themselves on the creator side of mm. making mm-hmm. stuff, um, is to a certain extent, creators are able to create their work through whatever process mental, physical, whatever the, it takes them to make this thing. Their view of what that art object is that they created is limited by their own POV to it. Of and course. so oftentimes, I don't think artists are the be-all, end-all um, right. source of information about what a piece of art or an art object is, especially because oftentimes the artist themselves becomes an art object, yes. which Miyazaki has in such a major way. He Absolutely. is a a singular name that represents themes and ideas and all this stuff. Um, And we all know that cinema is not a singular process. Even the most auteur of auteurs, it is a collaborative process. And so... Absolutely. But the fact that his films stand to be, these are Miyazaki films, it means he becomes this art object. And so I think it's interesting because he also has very strong opinions about what his films are or aren't about um, or what he knows or doesn't know about them. And one of the things I yeah. think is interesting is that he's, I want to sort of talk about his um, personal history because this is the first film that he has been like, I want to make a film about myself at, at a certain point in the process. That was something that he was sort of saying. Um, but he's also someone that very much says that his films are not about him processing his childhood or his own trauma. Um, but what's so interesting to me is because when I look at his life and his history and the themes of his film, what I see is someone who is processing a lot of this stuff. So uh, that begs the question of like, do we, what do we take from artists when they tell us about their work? I was uh, talking to a friend of the podcast, who I will not name for obvious reasons in a second, uh, who, who works on the creative side of things in the industry. And we were talking about our love of like old uh, DVD behind the scenes, featurettes and documentaries, and especially the ones that are filmed during the filming of, and he said, can I ask you a question? When did you realize that 
the people in those interviews aren't really telling the truth. And I said the first time I did an interview like that. Right, right. And it's not to say that they're all lying all of the time, but there is that as film nerds, right? And especially now that we're in the dossier era of this podcast and we're going for so many primary quotes, right? Whether they're the quotes from, you know, development, production, promotion, retrospective 20 years later, whatever, you're always seeing through the prism of A, how that person is processing their own experience, which the movie doesn't really know what it is until an audience is engaging with it, right? And so much of press now happens long before anyone sees it where that skews it. But also, yes, there's like elements of people's lives that they want to hold on to for themselves. You know, is Miyazaki lying to us or is he lying to himself when he says the work is not autobiographical? Either way, it doesn't change it. You can't take it 100% as fact, even if... Yeah, sure. Whether it's strategic or whether it's just the limitations of your own relationship to the thing you make. He never worked at a mythical bathhouse, is what he means. Of course, he's in his art. Well, and I ask, what makes him think he has the right to tell that story? I I mean, if he's never worked there. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. Um, but he never saw his parents become hogs. Right. This is true. But uh, oh, so he wants to put words in the mouths of soot sprites when he has never been a soot sprite. I don't know that they ever talk. <laughs> but here's a Miyazaki quote. He said, <laughs> Well, and that's actually really telling and damning. Miyazaki said at one point, I do not believe that I'm the kind of person who is scarred and makes that the theme of my movies or the manga that I make. But like he also that's like what like Joe Biden would say or whatever. Right. Where like Joe Biden's like, you know, no. Nah, Oh my God, you know, and I'm just like, you're, you're, this is your generation. You don't want to be like, now I'm talking about generations in this broad way, but like, you know, like a younger generation who's a little more like, this is about me and this is about something I went through or this is about like the experience of my generation. He's just like, yeah, shut up. Shut up. Draw draw the magic caterpillar. Right. It's, it'll, it'll make sense. Believe me. It's, it's all in the soup. Well, and I, I have this stuff figured out. This stuff doesn't haunt me. And I think there's an aspect of it, too, where Miyazaki wants the work to be the work. Of course. And I'm sure he knows. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not sure. I have no idea what Miyazaki thinks. But it feels like he is someone who has, um, based on all the stuff. I that thought I've of re- Biden just because they are almost exactly the same age, by the way. That's the only reason. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah. Having read a bunch of, like, he's very acutely aware of, you know, how life and art combine. And he has these really interesting ideas about that handshake between them. But I feel like him saying that kind of stuff also is him trying to keep the spotlight on the work. Well, this the way is, that yeah, he yeah, wants right, to express himself right, right. is he through the want work. Because he's not right. a salesman, but he is conscious of the way his work is being presented to the world, and he's trying to provide the context that he wants around it, which is he actually kind of abhors the commercialization. He wants the work to exist as its own pure thing. But yeah, you get into these questions of like, is that him strategically wanting to put the frame around the movie that he wants, or... Is this a guy who just like doesn't want to have the conversation with himself about this stuff? I'm not saying one's more interesting or the other. We will never know the answer. But this movie feels uh, so like him just stripping everything out of his chest. Well, this f- movie feels like the conversation, yes. right? So like a, li- a little bit of the the background, which I'm sure I think you've covered, I'm sure multiple times in the when you originally did this series. But to to do a little refresher is that. Um, the sort of like bullet points of Miyazaki's life were that he um, grew up and he, uh, in a pretty affluent situation. After the earthquake, his grandfather uh, started a company, a factory that makes airplane parts. Mm-hmm. Rudders, it was, uh, I believe. Was I think that? it was a, uh, engine bands for rudders and okay. things like that, whatever, something like that. Um, uh, his father and uncle then all, uh, sort of take over management of this factory. 
the war happens and they make a lot of money selling these airplane parts to the military um, as part of the war effort. Boom times for that. Yes. And Miyazaki has a lot of conflicted feelings that he talks about in interviews about his upbringing because he grew up in very affluent. Um, one of the things that is all, often referenced is that like his family had a car and gasoline to run the car, which is something that was not normal at the time. And also when I say affluent, I sort of mean that in relationship to the other the people around sure. them at the time. Uh, and then when all of the bombings happened, his family left and I think went to his grandfather's estate, which is this sort of larger estate that had like a big garden that became the sort of inspiration theoretically for a lot of um, the sort of nature and stuff that popped up in his life. But there's a moment that he's brought up in interviews. And I think it, I think it, it's even in the documentary where he talks about... King of Dreams of Madness. Yeah, where they're driving away from the fire bombings mm -hmm. in, a, in a, a, a truck with his family. And another family stops in front of him and is like, please take us with you. Right. And it was like, it's funny because uh, in this one book, they're talking about how uh, Miyazaki remembers it as a mom holding a baby. Mm -hmm. And Miyazaki's father just continues to drive. Right. And Miyazaki's a child has this like panic where he's like, I should have said something. Right. If maybe if I had said something, my dad would have stopped him. Surely we could have taken this family. Right. Miyazaki's brother contends, I don't think it was a family. I think it was like a guy right. or like... He's I, maybe right, yes. like sort of morphed the memory over the years. But he's right. brought this up in a, a degree that it clearly was impacting on brain. Yes, exactly. Yes. Right. Um, and then they're, they're there. And then after the war is over, they return back to the city. Um, uh, Miyazaki's mother was sick. Um, she had spinal tuberculosis for nine years. And so mm -hmm. she's in the hospital a lot. A lot of this is obviously in Totoro and stuff like the sick yes. mother. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so these themes come up a ton in his movies. And because, you know, because of she that. Lived, to be clear, she lived to a ripe old age. Yes, like exactly. She, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Miyazaki as a, as a kid had this uh, really deep love of airplanes and all this, you know, uh, the, the sort of mechanical stuff. But knowing that his family business was also supplying that for war efforts, this thing that he thought was abhorrent and awful. Mm. Um, and I, he has a complicated relationship with his father who was... Right. Um, He's also growing up in the age where Japanese, Japan completely demilitarizes and like the idea of the war is so horrifying to the next generation. Right. Yeah. And there's the idea of that his, his dad was part of the generation of like the like modern man and modern war, you know, sort of like these people that were trying to sort of express different parts of themselves. And for Miyazaki, there's this huge conflict. I think there's a lot of cultural conflict between his... Sure. The traditional Japanese. Japanese and modern Japanese that you know, and well, also that the, comes out in his this work. Is in the conflict all of Japanese right. cinema too. Yes, it's yes like, exactly. You know, Post-war Japanese. But cinema. The, the key conflict in him of I, I look at this thing that my family builds as a form of art. I'm obsessed with the beauty and the engineering and the design of this thing, and it is made from a pure place. <laughs> the the excitement of the pursuit of perfecting this thing, right. and then it goes out into the world and is used in a way that you cannot control. Right, and that's the, the the themes that pop up in so much of his films are yes. this push and pull between the pursuit of beauty and the beauty of existence and how the allure of that beauty can cause such rift and trauma and conflict among people. Um, and so what's interesting is that, you know, The Wind Rises with a film that it felt like everyone was like, oh, this is him reckoning with some of that very literally. It also mm -hmm. felt like an elegaic movie about his legacy that he was, you know, bidding us goodbye with. Right. It's, it's also yeah. his most literal, grounded film, right? Yeah, and there's nothing else that comes world. close yeah. to yeah. that in terms of just how... Uh, no, yeah, exactly. Yes. Not really, no. I mean, uh, but Kiki's The Wind Rises, realistic, but... the, 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 the big 
opening point was the the earthquake. Yes. Right. And for this movie, it's literally yeah. what I just described. Right. It's, it's the a, first thing in the movie. The first thing in the movie is this element of his childhood. Right. So this is him telling the story. And so I think it's really fascinating too because also comparing... It's sort of him telling this story. I mean, it's it's not literally because, because there's... his mom didn't die. Yes. And he wasn't then in this situation of like his dad marrying his mom's sister yes. and being like, this is your new mom-ish. Anyway, I gotta go. You know, but like, you know which is what I think is interesting story. though is that that first two minutes of the firebombings happening and then his family having to... Like all this stuff, that is seems related to his childhood and then everything that comes from that point forward feels like these um, semiotic expressions of all of the things that stemmed from that throughout his career, his life, everything. And there's also a really interesting context to the making of this film that we can sort of dive into also of like how it all came to be. Um, so... I feel like this is good. Let's lay yeah. out context and then, you know... So... Recap the plot. That's five, ten minutes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so... Uh, one of the things that's interesting is that this film, after the wind rises, which was announced as probably going to be Miyazaki's final film, we all braced for that. Which we was saw the it. third time he had called a movie his yes, final film, fourth. right? Mononoke was the final film. Spirited Away was the final film, or Howl was the final film. Howl, yeah, yeah. Um, but because liar, of the con okay? because of the context of the wind rises, I think a lot of people tended to believe him this time because it was like a departure from a lot of what he had done. And it felt more... It, it felt the most final filmy in terms yeah. of the actual meat of it versus the other films where it felt a little more like, I'm tired, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, and the wind rises ends with this theme that is like, you just have to live. Just go and live. Right, yeah, literally. Um, being yelled at him. Yes, exactly. And this film sort of starts from that point of life and then complicates that message because it almost feels like this is its own twist on that. But what's interesting, so this film is uh, something that Miyazaki decides he wants to do. Right. Um, Toshio Suzuki, um, Aiso Takahata passed away, mm -hmm. um, which was his longtime partner, a creative partner, and... Sort of, yeah. Mentor to a certain mm -hmm. degree. More kind of a pseudo-mentor and then kind of like a parallel partner. Yes. But was with him throughout his journey. Certainly. Uh, also, and fair to say, the only other sort of like fully developed A-tier filmmaker within the Ghibli system, certainly. which I think, I, I, I don't know. I mean, In the early stages. You and I disagree sure. a little bit, maybe, and, and you obviously are coming to this with more proper context, but like, the the notion of does Ghibli exist in any form after he's gone? Yes, yes, I, is it, yes. In that context, yes. He Takahata's films can stand separately, and it was a proper in a very major way. Yeah. Yes. Um, and you know, he, when, has, he has passed away though. At this at, at between yes. Wind Rises and this film, and Miyazaki was developing this film, and originally the film was a film that was um considered. Uh, you know, this is a lot of this is Toshio Suzuki talking about it's it. And the so producer of this film. Yes, and so who knows David's how much voice of it is quickly becoming full Super Dave Osborne. That's, <laughs> you can't say that. <laughs> and so who knows how much of this is? This is one person telling the story. Sure. You know what I mean? Um, but originally developing this film, this film was really about that friendship and about that mentorship. And then when he passed oh, away, he was mourning that. And then he really took that uncle character out of the story. Um, okay. 
And obviously, this is there's uh, the the book, um, Grand Uncle. You mean yes, Grand Uncle yes. was maybe supposed to be more woven in throughout because he only appears basically in the last thirty minutes, yes. twenty minutes, and then yeah. apparently the Heron became more of a character as the film was developed from that point forward. But any the point being, Miyazaki says I want to make this film. Suzuki, on the record, says that he almost didn't want to greenlight it because he was like, I don't know how this could be possible because sure. Miyazaki is getting older at this point. Um, his eyesight is going away. He's a lot more tired. It's harder to get him to do things. And, and Miyazaki's process up until then had been extremely... Um, he had his hands involved in many steps of the process. So right. he would not only storyboard, but he would also do a lot of the key framing art. Right. So that's like all of the major motions within shots. And then he would go through and he'd do a lot of really uh, rigid corrections on people's work after they had done their animation and sort of tried to interpret when, his work. When he would try to allow himself to delegate things to other people, he would usually then be overcome with, I actually just need to do it myself and take this back or at least redirect it. Yeah, and he had a, he also had a um, reputation of being a very <laughs> difficult to work with boss and manager. Yeah. He was known for yelling. He was known for working until midnight. And if you did not also work till midnight, that was against the culture of the office and what they did. He's also just like an incredibly blunt man. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's the reason why so many of his interviews like linger around the internet because you're just like, no one talks this directly. And you imagine if you're working for him and he just says like, this is bad, it lacks feeling. Yeah, exactly. All the time, it starts to break your spirits. Uh, absolutely. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of animators that worked together throughout the history of anime. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of people that worked on Miyazaki's films and touched different parts of it. Um, there's this one animator who's a, a very well-known animator, uh, Toshiyuki uh, Inui, who uh, has, has been an animator. He's not a director or anything like that. He's been like solely an animator. Mm -hmm. um, but he his first job was on Kiki's Delivery Service and he... Uh, only took it because Miyazaki wasn't directing it. And then when he showed up to work, they're like, oh, Miyazaki's directing it. And he was like, I, I wouldn't have taken this. Right. Another thing that happened a couple of times of like, this is a B project, someone else can make this. And then Miyazaki's like, actually, I'm doing They're Pongo. fucking it up, I'm taking over. Right. right. Yeah. But uh, Inui is really interesting because he does a lot of interviews and talks a lot about the process of making the More film. More open. Sure. Yes, yes, exactly. And so he does these beautiful interviews where he's talking about the process of making this film. And what was so interesting was that this is the first film that uh, like Miyazaki brought in someone to be the animation director um, and really gave him heightened partnership in the, 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 the filmmaking process. And that was Takeshi Honda. Right. And Takeshi Honda is a famous animator of his own right, yep. um, known for uh, probably most notably like the Neon Genesis Evangelion, sort of the work that he added to that but has a very different style than Miyazaki. Mm -hmm. And because Miyazaki was getting to the point where he was older, he was not able to do the, the same level of extremely, extremely specific correction work. Right. And because of that, this film ended up being this really interesting collaboration between all of these animators that came back together again. Right, to kind of be the web around him. Yes. yes. And so when you watch this film, what's really interesting and... Uh, uh, Inui does this great interview where he breaks down, oh, this is this person's scene. Oh, this is this person. Oh, this person did all of these things. And if you watch uh, The Boy and the Heron, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't look exactly Miyazaki-esque. And that's because, number one, uh, like Takeshi Honda has his own style that is very involved in this. And then also, these animators who Miyazaki had worked with for years 
you know, off and on, or that were just famous animators, came back for this film right. together. And because Miyazaki was at this stage where he could not work as quickly, oftentimes they just did their work on their own with very little correction. Well, it's, it's a more extreme version of like when when elderly live action filmmakers are making a, a late period film and the insurance company demands that there is a backup director on set and you have like Paul Thomas Anderson shadowing on Perry Home Companion or Guillermo del Toro on Kane Mutiny Court Martial. Uh, but those guys are just like, I'm. This is fun for me that I get to watch right, them work. Doing I assume I'm never going to have to do anything. Right. People love to theorize about their contributions, but those guys are always like, "I'm treating this as a free film school." He's clearly ready to take this movie on himself. Right. Whereas animation involves so many more tendrils, and this movie goes on for seven years. Yes, that he really does start to have to, for the first time in his life, accept other people taking the torch yeah. on certain things. But like what you're describing is the work of a director of an animated film. Usually. Like, like what happened on this movie is how it yeah, should be. The normal be. process. Exactly. Like it's totally obvious to delegate like a lot of that process. Richard Williams is like the only other guy in history who worked. He's never stressed out. Like Miyazaki work and Richard Williams like couldn't ever fucking finish his stuff. Make movies that people can see because right. they're never done. Which you have to imagine when you talk about the nerves and green lighting this film that they're just like, this is Thief and the Cobbler. This is never going to get done. But what's different, I would say, is that this is a fully hand-drawn 2D animated film, mm. which we have very few of in yes. the modern in era. In general. Well, the more in Japan. Yes. Yeah. But in American yeah. animation, when, I, yeah. when you're referring to this, how animated films are made. Well, not as much anymore because so much is computer-generated. But then also, the, anim the hand-drawn animation, like stuff that is done now, is done with such a um, finite rubric of here's the exact character models, here's yes. the exact how we do this, here's right. what this person looks like, and all the... Da -da -da. And because of how this process unfolded and Miyazaki's age and all that stuff and how much he had to hand over to Honda to um, take over a lot of this stuff and how much they just let animators do a thing, there are sections of this film that look and feel different than other sections of the film. Sure. It becomes an interesting collage. It, that will probably right, feel more obvious. And right. the look of characters changes throughout the film. It's right. like really the hair fascinating. And, there's like a guy inside of him. Yeah, exactly. One animator just put I, a guy inside I don't the think hair. You're right about that. I've only seen it the one time. Sometimes he's a bird. Sometimes like there's like a guy. If inside. that happened in the movie, I would have noticed it. This film ended up being an interesting collage of all these great animators. Who yes. I think there's a funny element to it. Also, I don't know this to be true, but yeah, in some Avengers of the, assembled situation, in some of the interviews that I read, I think I, I get this energy. So this is me doing a little bit of fan fan mm -hmm. casting right now, but I think this is there a little bit where Miyazaki does not trust that many people. He has a very high bar of accomplishment and I think has to be sold on certain animators being allowed to work on his films. Yeah. And so I think he has this sort of uh, this group of people that are like these like, you know, young upstart animators that he's like, uh, I trust this person. I can have this person come back. Those animators are all now in their 60s and extremely say, accomplished, famous animators. upstart in air quotes. Yes. Yeah. They are extremely accomplished animators of their own right that have their own careers. But to Miyazaki, it sort of feels like that, like, yeah, you know, these are the young guys the that come help me out, you know. Yeah. I don't know if that's exactly true, but that it, it, there's that energy that's there. And so a lot of these people came together. Um, a lot of the... Um, the uh, there's a handful of people that are part of that the, the uh, realist anime sort of um, generation. The like people who did like Akira and mm -hmm. like Jinra and all these movies that like have a lot more um, realism and 
you know, volumetric animation, whereas Miyazaki's work is so bubbly and round and expressive and doesn't do that. And so this film has a lot of elements that are not Miyazaki elements. They're Miyazaki stories and uh, frames and storyboard moments, but then these animators take them and sort of um, express them in their own way. There's even, um, what's the uh, the aunt's name? Yeah, Natsuko. Not, uh, in the movie? Yes. Sorry? Yes, yes. She's the one of the first characters ever in a Miyazaki film that was not designed by Miyazaki. Uh, that was a character designed by Takeshi Honda because they're all like, Miyazaki's not great at adult women. What do you mean? Like, and there Masika are... with her giant boobs, which she <laughs> always talks about. I'm trying to think of adult women, actually. Because it's funny uh, because he's the most, the most iconic animator of young female characters. Yes, sure. Like, he's... There's no animator who's better known for, like, little his plucky girls. little girls. Yes. Right. But you're, there's not a lot of adult women. In mean, this one yeah. interview, uh, they reference uh, the female lead in Porco Rosso. Right. Which is like, ah, seems a little off. Something's a little off with that. Well, and let's try to take an inventory, David. Wh who are the characters you have in posters on your wall surrounded by... Yeah, wait a second. He designed the hottest woman in the world. Yeah, wait. Uh, actually, can you just show us your phone background? Okay, so, yeah, there's Porco Rosso. There's Nausicaa. No, uh, Sosuke's mom is, is, yeah. is, you know, is the number one woman in the world, um, so they're wrong. But so they talk about how Takeshi Honda just basically was like, I'm going to do the whole character sheet for this character. Uh -huh. So I love that this film ends up being a pastiche because also... Pastiche isn't the word. You, you mean like a patchwork? patchwork. Yes, not, patchwork. not a pastiche. It's the baton being handed off between different animators. No, it, you're, what you're saying is beautiful. That like, whether by hook or by crook, like uh, Miyazaki allowed a little more support and collaboration because of his age and because of, you know, support circumstances. Support isn't in the word. I, it sounds like he extended trust in a way he trust had not really before. Well, yeah. Because when you even talk about the young, quote-unquote, young upstart animators that he does trust, he trusts them to do the exact thing he wants rather than incubating their own development, if that makes sense, which is why most of them left and went off and did their own thing and didn't look back for however much reverence they may have for him and his work. It's like, well, but I was I was functioning as a finger on his hand. Right. Well, that's like the, Takeshi Honda was going to do a, a, a new Evangelion thing and was like, all right, if Miyazaki calls, though, you have to answer the phone. You have to kind of do that. Sure. Um, another great example is um, um, uh, Katsuya Kondo was the animation director on Ponyo. Um, and I think he did a lot of the characters on Key's Delivery Service. I think he has a lot more of a this sort of like light, expressive style to him. There are sequences that apparently in this film, Miyazaki just let him do it and like didn't do any corrections. And it was just like, yeah, that's uh, that's fine. Let that he, go. And he said, go off King. <laughs> yeah. Which is crazy. He said, <laughs> exactly. Um, you dropped this and then he sent an emoji <laughs> of a little guy <laughs> with crown. And then, yeah, Kondo went into Miyazaki's office and Miyazaki was just head down in a dab. <laughs> um, he solemnly took off his glasses, looked down and said, we have no choice but to stand. Yeah, yeah that's um, everything that happened. But I think that's really... So one of the things that I love in films, right? I'm just actually picturing Miyazaki Dab. in his green apron. <laughs> just... <laughs> Cigarette, you know, like yeah, mouth. you know, that shot where they're doing the like, um, uh, interview in front of the Miyazaki Museum, and then he just sort of like workman like walks through the background. Yes, what if it's just in the middle of like walking, he just stops and does a quick dab, <laughs> flips a water bottle? Yes, um, anyways, no bits, no um, bits, no bits, no bits, but I will say, 
the themes of this film are about legacy and passing down um, and what can we pass down? Um, what of our imperfections are permanent? What are the things that we hold on to? What are the things that we can resolve? Mm-hmm. And what of those imperfect and perfect aspects of, of the world that we build can we hand down to the next generation? And I think what's so beautiful about this film is that the film is an art object that is that also. Yes, it's right. Yeah. These are all animators that came up um, either working for Takahata or Miyazaki or uh, other great people that are sort of all sort of interconnected. And now he's at a point where he cannot physically do all of this stuff on his own. And so his only option is to pass the baton down to these animators and ask them to step in. And they are not going to do exactly what he did. It's going and to be different. okay. The, the fucking shapes will be in a different arrangement. And it, exactly. And it might not be exactly what Miyazaki would have done if it was just him. And it might look different. The characters might change. Um, there's a big thing about their noses are sort of different based on what animator is doing what they like. But that's part of the passing down of art, right? And looking at this film as this art object, I think there's something interesting about final films. Uh, here's a question that I, I, I don't know the answer to that I'm curious if you guys can think of. What filmmakers do we have that got to make a final film? Consciously? Yes. Like deliberately? That, that it was announced that this is their final film and it was. Well, this is the whole. This is the whole Tarantino thing: is being like, that's why make your final film with intentionality, even if he's like capping it decades earlier than he would need to, so you don't end up with an accidental final film that is whatever. You know, it's a good question. Who actually called their shot, and it was that? Because so many people unretire. Idea is sort of a final film, I think. Like, but like, I think even with stuff like that, where it's like David Lean was old and had been in retirement, and then was like, "Okay, I'm gonna make this." Right. I don't know if he was actually like, "This is it, bitch. The mic is dropped." You know, like people don't usually do that because you'll end up like looking like Miyazaki, where you're like coming out of retirement and sort of embarrassed and like. I know I said I right. wasn't going to do this anymore, but here I am. Like, I mean, and that's what's going to happen to one Quentin a couple Tarantino. Times. Oh, it's absolutely going to happen. But Terrence Davies a couple times was like, I'm walking off the court. But Terrence right? Davies was someone who had to push every movie uphill so hard that he's probably also in the press cycle like, I fucking can't do this anymore. You know? Yes. No, there are a lot of those guys. I mean, Schrader's very much in that phase right now where he's like, look, between the state of the industry and my health, Every time he's promoting a new movie, Could he's like, it. maybe that was the last but one. But he's also and then he can't like, I'm going to make another one if it right. let me. Right, but know. rarely is it this thing where no. people go, they take their pause and they go, and this is going to be this final film. And, and I'm designing it as my final statement to some degree. Now, there are movies like A Prairie Home Companion. Which I think is a great final film. Right, it's easy to read into that, like, this is someone who probably knows but, but this is it. But he was actively prepping another film. He sure was, because he's a grumpy little... Munchkin. Yeah. No, I mean, he, before that... I was really waiting to see what that last word was. He's also a very tall man. Little Munchkin. He was like your size. All right, he's a tall man, but you cannot deny that there are parts of old Altman that are a little Munchkin-like. Munchkin isn't the word I would (laughs) use. David Sims, The Atlantic. Yeah. Grumpy, (laughs) certainly. (laughs) No, but uh, that was, uh, you know, he he won his Lifetime Achievement Oscar, right? talk like this, you know. I don't think that's what he sounded like. You're still sounding like Schrader. In my like head, he's just like this little bridge troll, you know. This is all Schrader stuff yeah, to me. Well, fine. Um, he he won his uh, Lifetime Achievement Oscar. He gave this whole speech of like, I had a heart transplant five years ago. I've never disclosed it because I didn't want to 
be uninsurable. And that means I have another 20 years of directing left in me. In Prairie Home, he was like, here we go. I'm obviously in a late stage, right. looking back, reflecting, thinking about death. But like, next movie, Hands on a Hard Body. He was supposed to make Hands on a Hard Body. Right. It was cast. It was prepped. He died. And uh, yeah, so it's like, that's a great final statement movie. But he was rejecting that fully. They usually do, because it's annoying. Right. But here's the thing that I will also posit, is I think the idea of a final film or a final artwork is actually more of a romantic and yes. philosophical oh, idea yes. than is it ever something that um, sees the light of day in real life. Because I also think that final works, I think people want them to be, oh, the, 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 the grand perfection of this person. The, the, the final message that we're going to be left. Yes. But I think actually final works, especially if they occur, occur in your end of life, are transitional. Yes. It's, it's someone's career is not an essay that has a concluding sentence. It is a stream of human existence that transitions somewhere. And the final film is the last bullet point, the last data point of transition that we have. But it's not going to be the thing that summarizes the entirety of a career. Right. Ever. Wind Rises was him attempting to do that. And then he wakes up the next morning after it's done and released and is like, fuck, I have new thoughts. Right. You know, I, I mean, I'm not basing that on anything other than that's how human beings exist. Right. You know, and like, as you said, David, it's like, what else is this guy going to fucking do? Well, look. this guy can't stop expressing himself artistically as long as he has the means and the wherewithal to manifest it in any way. I mean, first he made a little movie about a caterpillar and then, yeah, then right. he does this. I mean, I am in a phase in my life, which is, I think, kind of like one of the more tired phases that people yeah. go through where you have young children and you're just kind of like run ragged. You seem full of beans today. I am full of beans. And uh, I had a burrito yesterday, I'll have you know. Okay, so he's literally full of beans. And let's uh, put that in the episode notes. We should. Um, David's full of burrito beans. But, um, uh, you know, you have that fantasy of like, what if someone came to me tomorrow and was like, you won't have to work another day in your life. Here's whatever I, that's taken care of. You uh -huh. now you get to go retire. You know you can garden and cook and sure. you could experience great art and travel and you know right. Would I like that? I'd probably take it being like hell yeah. And then like six months in, am I like the fuck do you? Okay, do? this has been fun, but now yeah. I want to return to you know creating or whatever, whatever it is I do it myself. Yeah, and I He's think that's beard. It's so crazy. I was waiting for you to well, it. well, you came in late. I already came in a couple off minutes late. Well, who's, you know, that's neither here nor there. JD has a beard. It's just different. I, uh, I mean, I've known you for not like bad, almost fifteen years now. Yeah. perhaps I've known you for ten. And bro. you walked into the Angelica yesterday, and I, I was, I was shocked. I've never even seen a hint of a beard before. I mean, talk about transitional stages and big statements from major artists. I was about... <laughs> J.D. Amato has started a new era. I, I'm on a local competitive running team, the Hellgate Roadrunners. And one of my teammates, Andrew Gorman, um, accused me of being a coward for never attempting to grow a beard. And uh, I said that I don't think I could grow a beard. And he said, you can, you're just a coward. And so then I have attempted to grow a beard and... Succeeded. It yeah, I think, it, I think he won. was right. I was a coward. I think a lot of people who say they can't grow a beard are... You know, right. More just like, well... Weak. They're weak. 
it's more a thing of like, of well, I don't like mind. those first two weeks where it sure. looks it's shitty. Bad. And it's it like looks if you bad, get any beer bad. growing yeah. enough, it does feel kind of bad. It feels That's terrible. Yeah. 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 All right. The boy and the heron. Um, <laughs> so it's about a boy. Um, Can't but grow it's a not Chris White's is about a boy. It's not about a boy. And Paul and Paul co-directed that one. Let's yeah. give credit where credit. So sorry. But uh, is there any more context you want to get into before we um, discuss the plot of the film? Um, the one thing that I'll say that I think is interesting. Obviously, it's also inspired by a book called How Do You Live? Yes, which was the original working title. And people it's the Japanese title. assumed yeah. it was going to be more of a direct adaptation. That those, title. Those fools. Sure. Because every adaptation he's ever done. I mean, Howl's is like maybe the most faithful adaptation of a work he's done. And it's still obviously yeah. a departure. Yeah. And then there's stuff like Wind Rises where he's like, it's, it's sort of inspired by this book, but it's also about this real guy. But the events happening, this real guy happened to another guy in this book. Right. And you're like, what? Ponyo, he's like, I called the character Sosuke after this book, The Gate, which is this like masterpiece of Japanese literature. Yeah. I read The Gate. It's about this couple who are like, can't have kids. It has nothing to do with Ponyo, except they like Ponyo live also on a hill. Started as Little Mermaid, right? Well, Ponyo has a lot of Little Mermaid. Right. In it. It the also couple has, in like, that book. Wagner in it. Like yeah. it's got all kinds of weird shit. The couple in that book love him. They do. They do love him. It's just I read this book, no, knowing obviously that it would not be about a little yeah, boy sure. and a little girl who loves him. But like, where I was like, it's this like stunning, quiet book about this couple who can't have kids, and then later you realize like, oh, they both this relationship was the product of affairs. Yeah, and they feel guilty. It's like written in 1900, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just so funny to think of Miyazaki being like. I shall call this six-year-old in short pants Sosuke after <laughs> that book of, you know, no yeah. relation. Anyway. Um, no, I, I was reading that the sales of uh, How Do You Live have gone, like, through the roof in sure, Japan. Right, because people, people are, like, out, looking right. for clues or, or understanding. But the book itself is an element of the film. Right. And that the lead character has the book. Have, did you yes. read this book? I did not read no. that book. You um, read a lot of books. I don't know. I also mean. watched uh, Future Boy Conan. Oh, sure. This first yeah. time you'd never seen Boycott. Okay. Yeah. I've never seen that. It finally was, because it, it was unavailable here for a while, I, right? I, I believe it still is, but I okay. got it through other means. What? I thought G-Kids maybe either maybe. announced they're about to release it or just did release it. I had someone offer it to me and I accepted. And the way that I saw it did not have any English around it. So I did not understand fully the words that they were saying. It. But is a show that you don't necessarily need the words to fully understand what's going on. Um, and, I, I don't is know. Is Andy Richter in it? Yes. Um, I in the will, year 2000. That's yes. why they call it Future Boy Conan. I will say after the we watched in it. <laughs> The Boy and the Heron, I went home and I re I re-put no on no the bits. pilot or like the first episode and it I like, I oh, wow. cried again mm-hmm. because it is watching this film and then the seeing where the end of his career. he yeah. came from and it, it felt like, you know, like in like Toy Story 2 when they watched like the Woody's Roundup TV show or whatever yeah. and you're like, Oh, the, this is who the I want. joy and simplicity of where it all began, and like yeah. now where he is as this older. Uh, Can I just really, say it? Yeah, when he's roundup looks like it sucks. That's so fucking wrong. Having been made to watch Toy Story two so many times he's recently, like trying to start another dumb animation <laughs> nerd. He was angry well, that this episode. Don't put me on Team Griffin on this one. I don't so know. I might be on Team David for this one. Some guy named Will. Vin- well, Woody's roundup looks like a great fucking show. Critters. Um, yeah, the critters. Uh, prospector, Thinky Prospector. Put on the dynamite to try to. That part's pretty funny. Blow it out. Um, I don't know if I'm putting too much uh, weight on this in the context sure. of the thing, but especially with you talking about his his. Ben, what? I just laughing at you saying that. 
That's nine years okay. of working with Griffin. <laughs> okay. What 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 are you putting too much weight on? No, you're talking a lot about the the the, the quote unquote the younger generation of animators who came back for this movie, right? Yeah. Who were sort of the children of Miyazaki, but all left and went off and did their own thing. A lot of them continued working on and Miyazaki har- films. Hardly yep. young people at this point. To be, they're to all be in their I, I, yeah, they're all. Quotes. Old, I put in right. air quotes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I put in air quotes. Well, you can't hear air quotes. I said the quote. <laughs> I said the quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Goro of it, I do think, is interesting in this movie and him sort of reckoning with what is the thing I've built and what happens to it when I'm gone. Yeah. Because Goro is the one who has stayed. And whereas these other guys, even when they have come back and worked on Miyazaki, what, am I taking something that you want to get to? No, I want to do a bit, but I'm not going to do it. You said no bit. We're not no doing bits it. We're not doing okay. it. Okay. We're not doing it. Uh, that th- those guys found new means of expression. Yeah. And am I wrong in in thinking that the sort of narrative around Goro is like he is trying very hard to uphold the legacy, and it is not quite uh, hitting. Yes. This and, movie has a well, fail son in it too. Sort of. I don't know. Who would you consider the fail son? The, in this the movie? dad, kind of. Oh sure. And like. I watched it, and I... You can't not think about Goro Miyazaki for a second, and usually I just kind of put it aside, because I'm like, it's too simple, you know, and I shouldn't, you know, read into this relationship. But it is true that Goro Miyazaki exists, bears the Miyazaki family name, directs animated films, and they are all mediocre. Yes. I don't know what to make of that. I don't know if his father agrees, but every time you read about his father's opinions on his son's movies, he's always like, he worked hard, I can tell. Yes. Yeah, and, it's always like this sort of like very vague right. statement. But he's trying so hard to be like, I can crack what a Ghibli movie is right. versus these guys who are like, maybe I'm taking what I learned from working there and expressing this in a different way, my own prism in a different place, whatever it is. Um, I, I do think it's like similar to the Pixar problem that has really come to the surface of like, Lasseter built a dream team of all his fucking CalArts compatriots and lured them all over to him, and then never established a next generation below him. Right. A and classic thing. That totally. You know, yeah. And Lasseter, on top of that, started getting aggressively bad at making films himself, in a way... good at hugging. Great at hugging. Incredible at hugging. But uh, in a way that Miyazaki didn't, where it's like, his eyes off the ball entirely, and Pixar exists in this weird state where they're like, we're now trying to do the work that needed to be done 20 years ago and finding the Domishis and finally giving them a boost rather than like years of them losing directors because they're like, they're never going like, to let me make what I want my way here. I have to go off and do something somewhere else. But I think that's an aspect that this film is addressing. Totally. That's why I'm bringing I, this up. I right. think it is a very... The building of the tower is when I got really locked into like... Right. But I think there is this, this belief that everything needs to be passed down and remain the same. Ah, Studio Ghibli needs to remain the same. Who's yes. going to take over that mantle? And I think the answer that this film, both in how it is made yes. and what the film is saying, is that you don't need to hand down the exact replica. You add but a small yes. piece to the thing, and then that goes off. And so all these animators that worked with Miyazaki, the they've all gone on to make other films and other stuff. That's that's the next yes. generation. Yes, you don't need someone to just doesn't need step the Ghibli into Ghibli, in and, right? Right, and that's why I think also it's a, a, interesting because people also often try to I don't know people have the dumb comparison where they're like, oh, Ghibli's like you know it's the Disney of Japan. It's like it's not. It's not because no, Disney Disney is, is a multi you know 
armed like conglomerate that yeah has tendrils in every part of life and Ghibli's yeah. not like that at all. Yeah. But here's something I found very interesting. And I don't know if I just missed that this has been in previous films and I hadn't caught it, but it felt new to me. Mm-hmm. In the end credits, there is a full block of merchandising development team. There is a block of the park, the Ghibli yeah, right. Park. Well, they have the Ghibli Park now, but they've always had merch, or at least for a long time. But that yeah. does—it's not usually a thing I think that gets credited in the film. I'm not saying it's unusual that they have yeah. merchandising. It felt like a more explicit acknowledgement, and even the streaming thing. I remember talking to the guy who runs G Kids in 2019 when we were doing the series, and he was like, "They will never be streaming." Right. He likes the sanctity of it needing to be a deliberate choice and engagement with. A screening at a, you know, when they do the Ghibli Fest every year or buying the one disc or whatever it is. And then a year later, they announced HBO Max is getting all the Ghibli movies. Right. And they're also creating these sound and image scapes and all this sort of stuff. And all of this was just like, you know what, Miyazaki, if you're going to finish this movie, you have to make some concessions because this is project is going slowly. Yeah. Getting more and more expensive. We're not getting money in from other areas. This is the only thing we're all working on we need to open the doors a little bit. And there's this like chunk in the credits of acknowledging tendrils of the company that are not direct expressions of this movie, but are the things that allowed this movie to stay in production for seven yeah, years. But that's sure. still, that's nothing like Disney. I'm not saying it is. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're having an argument with a Disney guy. Who, who, uh? You are having an argument with a Disney guy. That was Scrappy not the point the I was making. Scrappy the Cat. You're arguing with Scrappy the Cat. Well, sure, but I'm addressing the point you made. Yeah. Yeah, like Disney's a company that makes like ninety billion dollars a year. Yes, that's a lot of money. And they like they are Ghibli not. is not a money a company that makes one billion dollars a year. No, like yeah, it is a it is a small concern. No, but, but and despite yeah. the name, it is not a company that is about one creator, Disney. Right, right, right. It it, it well, just isn't it, that. Walt's still there. He's he just got to go deep. You know, this and, is the point I'm trying to make. Is that. Disney is like, we find a way to monetize every element of what we do, right? right? And to pump it out in all quarters. And Ghibli's thing has always been, we strategically, with a, a tremendous amount of control, make the deals and the expansions that allow us to continue making our movies. We don't need growth co- quarter over quarter. We don't need to outdo ourselves. It's just enough to keep the lights on and maintain the same size. And the last seven years have been them accepting more of that a little bit which doesn't feel like them trying to like take over the world or they get a lot of shit for it people have criticized the park especially but but it's all truly this movie doesn't get finished if they don't do it it finally got to this point like you have this environmental message that runs through your movies like why are you building a fucking theme park like that's so contrary everyone who's been to the theme park is like it's really a park it's not that much of a theme park it's philosophically so different than what we think of and I'd love to go Yeah. yeah I also well, think there's there's a I don't know Miyazaki's actual opinion on this. Um, it he might have spoken to it on an interview somewhere. I don't I don't remember what it exactly is, but I would not be shocked if he is not concerned about the legacy of Ghibli after he goes. This is he's I'm definitely not. He's spoken on this extensively. Yeah, in that he's just like it doesn't matter. All of this Ghibli's is just, just a dumb name. What I do I need of. to do to get yeah. this movie done? Here's a right. but there's, also maybe this thing doesn't need to exist past me. There's a fun anecdote from when I was in college. Find the quote. I was at, I went to film school and I minored in computer science. Humble brag. Jesus Christ. We get it. You minored in computer. No, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. 
David, come and go on. No, no, go on. Sorry, Sorry modern computer science. Computer scientist. Computers. David's it's not a science. It's an art. David never has a laptop in front of him when recording, and is actively scrolling and typing something. I'm trying to find this Miyazaki quote. Okay, it's. I know it's. It's in my Tumblr, so I have to load my Tumblr. You still have it's, a Tumblr? I mean, it exists. Like it hasn't been updated since 2015. Do you want to promote time. it? You want to promote the Tumblr? David Simpson Tumblr dot com. Wow. No L. No L, which means I really must have made no it a long time well, ago. No <laughs> No L. No bits. Of course, no bits. A Christmas themed Tumblr. Okay. Um. So when I was in college, because I spanned those two departments, mm -hmm. NYU connected me. Uh, MoMA had reached out to NYU and said, "Oh, we need help. We have a whole uh digital art wing of MoMA, mm -hmm. but our um." And this was, you know, back in the the twenty aughts. What do you call that? The aughts. Yeah, um, they're the like, we don't really have our preservation department is not robust yet mm -hmm. in terms of our uh, digital artwork, and so they wanted students to come in and to be uh, the go between between artists and MoMA to figure out how to take their any of their work that used computer programming or digital stuff to figure out a preservation strategy to hold on to this for years. Uh -huh. And one of the first things they told us when they sat us down is they were like, first things first, when you talk to the artist, the artist will tell you that one of the things they think is beautiful about this work of art is that it will one day fall apart and cease to work. Uh -huh. That is wonderful for them, the artist. We have just spent $200,000 on this work of art. We are a museum. <laughs> we do not share that opinion. Yeah. So no matter how much the artist tells you right. that this thing falling apart and dying at a certain point is beautiful and wonderful, that is not your job. <laughs> right. And I think about that a lot because uh, almost everyone that I know as, you know, working professionally in this industry as a, a writer and director and all this stuff, like, I do like to move forward. And when sure. I move on from something, I'm like, yes, it's if that disappeared, that's uh, okay. Not from the universe, but like, I want to continue moving forward. And the fact that these things have lifespans is interesting to me. So with something like Miyazaki, there is sometimes this feeling that people are like, Oh, what's the legacy going to be? How does this continue to go? And the answer is, it doesn't. Who gives a shit? Can I read you the quote? Someone has, yeah. Someone has a career arc. Yeah. And that is that is it. That's the, the, the lifespan. I believe this is from Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, pretty much. It's from one of the documentaries yeah. about him. Someone asks him, aren't you worried about the studio's future? And he right. says, this is translated, future's clear. It's going to fall apart. I can already see it. What's the use worrying? It's inevitable. Puts on sunglasses. Ghibli is just a random name I got from an airplane. It's only a name. Then he looks out at some trees and says, how pretty. I mean, it's classic Miyazaki. I mean, obviously. The, and it's also, what's so beautiful about that is it's everything we said where it's like, it's both, that's how he feels, but then I'm also like, but I also don't believe yeah, him. it's a and little no. bit of an like, act or a but also persona th that This he movie's metaphor talking, is right. the world's worst Jenga tower that includes <laughs> the spheres, yeah, like objects some, that you cannot stack upon. It's non-Euclidean. And this kid keeps sure. on pushing back on like, not even, you're giving me pieces that are fucking bullshit. Right, you basically gave me like a, you gave me cursed it. pieces. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, actual yeah. lots. Like, these are cursed. These are from tombs. Yes. Man, this movie. And is you're wild. just like, maybe this just needs to topple over. It's it's actually kind of unhealthy that it has stayed up this long. Yeah. So that's a long way of saying the last piece of context before we talk about actually getting to the, the plot of it. Mm -hmm. When asked, Miyazaki was like, I don't really even know what every aspect of this film is about, Good which I think him. is the best 
type yeah, of right. art. Correct. Yeah, when the totally. artist is like, I don't know, but I'm being summoned to create these images. I'm summoned to tell this story. I cannot tell you what it exactly means. Here is what it is. It's no good if they can tell you exactly what it means anyway, right? Yes. You want, a, you also, want a little bit of mystery. Beyond that, when, I mean, talking about like people lying in, in interviews, you know, strategically, sometimes it's just like, I don't want to feed it to people. The right. thing is not functioning properly if I'm preloading into people's heads how they need to process there are it. artists who are like, look, it's there if you want to sure. figure it out. But they're right. Aren't too many artists who are like, let me tell you what I was trying to do. Now it happens. I would disagree. I think there are today too many artists Maybe who try to many. do that. Maybe there's too much of that going on. Right well, now. what you drives me right. nuts about the like Kubrick stuff where it's like, actually the carpet means that. Yeah, it's he's yelling at for, us. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, no, these... Like, he doesn't build movies that way. Yes, yeah. and that's the, that's the whole purpose of semiotics, right? Is this stuff gets... It gets baked into right. us as creators and it comes out in ways that we don't even know. And it does have meaning, but the... That meaning doesn't only exist if there is an intentionality and a didactic yes. point that is trying to be made through those elements. Can I say, before we talk about the boy and the hair, yes. just one other Our thing. 15th time saying we're about to start talking about it. My daughter is watching more and more stuff as Humble she bro. grows. Uh, and we've watched, she's gotten obsessed with two Pixar shorts. One is Bao. Mm -hmm. To my utter surprise, she over and over again wants to watch this story of... He's a little food baby. Yeah. A little food baby, but also, of course, a an immigrant parent dealing with her son growing up and changing and marrying uh -huh. a white woman. And also about her consuming her food baby like, you know, yeah. fucking Neptune or whoever, you know, from mythology. <laughs> and my daughter just watches it and is like loving it. She also likes Jack Jack Attack. We talked about this. Right. She also loves La Luna. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, the the one by the guy who then does Luca, Luca. yeah, uh, which she calls Moon and Stars. Mm. Anyway, you mentioned Domi Shi a while back. Yeah, you know, twenty minutes ago. Boy in the Heron uh, is the movie we should talk about, though, right? Yes, nineteen forty three, right? Yes, what a time! The war is afoot. World War Two is happening. Yes, um, there are fire bombings happening in Japan, and our film opens with. Uh, 12-year-old Mihito yeah. uh, experiencing a firebombing in his hometown. Tokyo. And right away, uh, his father announces that his mother's hospital is on fire. Yes. And, and the first running into the fire and the, the fire like overwhelming the frame. And the father runs out and then I think there's a really beautiful moment where we see Mihito want to run off and then return and then we watch him as he changes clothes. Yeah. And then he runs out and by that point, it's all a fire universe that he enters into. It's very overwhelming, especially given that, like you, I'm watching this movie with barely any understanding of what the movie is going to be. Yeah. And it's this very jarring, upsetting beginning that does kind of feel like unlike other Miyazaki movies. Yeah. They do not usually have any, a beginnings this sort of visceral. And there's a freneticism, too, yes. and a specificity to the images that feels very both Miyazaki, but also there's an edge to it that is not totally Miyazaki, mm -hmm. um, that feels more like other anime. Like, it's very interesting right the, off the top. The fire itself feels very Akira, and I forget the term you used of just what, the move towards realism that yeah. happened in the 80s, but just like there is an intensity there that feels more realistic than the sort of expressionistic thing he usually does. Yeah. And then the film jumps to a year later. Yes. Um, it's a year later. His father has remarried. 
his wife's younger sister. Yes, which it takes in very classic Miyazaki right. sort of form. Mm -hmm. You sort of glean through words that that's what's happening. Um, and you're like, wait, that's his mom's sister. Yeah, kind of mm -hmm. old-fashioned biblical notion of, right, you know, like if, if you know, you lose this person, you can marry someone else or in the family. Or classic Bogdanovich notion. <laughs> yeah, and I think what... P Peter B., he, he pulled that one? Yeah. Yeah. So right, what, of course he did. Yeah, it's, it's like the Bible. I don't know why my Peter Bogdanovich impression is Lauren Michaels. Go on. Uh, there's a really visceral moment to me very early in the film that like I cued into, which is, um, you know, obviously we know that the idea of Ma, the moment between moments that Miyazaki mm -hmm. talks about a lot. These spaces between moments are what defines a Miyazaki film to me mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And there's one early on here where... Um, uh, we're introduced to the new home that he's going to be in once they, you know, his family has fled to more towards the countryside. And um, he enters the home and then he goes into a bed and it's like his new bed. And he has a moment where he just sits in the bed and then just topples over to the side and just closes his eyes. And it's just laying there in this sort of like prone, uncomfortable position. Mm. And it's like, to me, such a... Um, a visceral moment of grief. That grief being this thing that comes in these waves. Mm -hmm. And I know those moments well where you're just... And I, and I remember watching the film and think about this. He's laying on this like patterned blanket. And I'm like, I know that feeling so well of going through something that is um, traumatic and being somewhere new and being like, this isn't mine. Right. Mm -hmm. This pattern is meant to amuse and it's not mine. It's not for me, but it's trying to comfort me in this moment. And right now, I'm just going to lay my head down. Even all of this is so foreign. It's not, none of this is mine. But in this moment, this is where I have to rest and where I have to find comfort in this thing that is so foreign to me. And it's like this really beautiful moment that, again, I feel like other filmmakers might focus on the big feelings of all yeah, of that. Sure. And Miyazaki is like, no, it's these moments between like him putting on the clothes to go help his dad put out the fire at the hospital. It's like, that's a moment that as a kid, you would think back on and go, oh, but maybe if I had already been in the right clothes, maybe I could have gotten there right. and done yeah. something. It's like, you, you you get locked into these moments that are so specific and small. And I well, think- Well, even just you talking about the, the thing with him in the car, seeing the family. Yeah. And like living with that. If I had said something, there was a, a split second of a decision. You never stop reliving even though it is fixed and you can never know if the outcome would have changed. And it's all in your own head. Yeah. It's all. Yes, exactly. Because that's not yeah. how life works. Time no. just keeps going, yeah. which is part of the theme of what the, the, the movie goes on to tell you. Um, and what's interesting is I think um, the, there's a lot of talk about how Miyazaki storyboarded this straight ahead, right? So just like mm -hmm. chronologically. And so the first chunk of the film has more Miyazaki influence. He was more actively involved because once he completed that, he went back and started all right, I'm going to go correct the animation. I'm, I'm going to go draw some key frames and dive in there. And, and, and that's then, when they're like, Jesus Christ, like this will never be done. Right. Yes. Yeah. There's talk about how in, in the past it had been 10 minutes of film per month. Right. And this current process, they were producing one minute of film per month. Because I right. think this movie was originally announced in 2017 for a 2020 release mm -hmm. yeah. timed to the, the Olympics, Olympics yeah. that didn't end up happening that year. And... In 2020, they announced it is like 30% done. Yeah. In the year that most people thought it would be finished. And yeah. the last three years since then have been very touch and go. 
Yeah. And, and they I, weren't really communicating. I mean, especially with them not revealing information about the movie in terms of the marketing, they also were being very cagey about the timeline of it progressing. Well, it was one of the first things where they said, there's no timeline. Right. We're just going to let this film move ahead at whatever pace it needs to move ahead. And apparently the work from home stuff with COVID actually helped them because animators could go work independently. Interesting. Without him hovering over their shoulders. Well, because it's just around. not possible. Yes. Um, so... Then we're introduced to very soon after um, what the audience, my audience, really, you could feel the relief coming through them when the four little ladies show up. They're like, oh, okay, we're in. It, this here's is, the lane. Isn't it like normal. eight of them at the uh, beginning? Sure. Or is it always four? There are four maids like credited in the cast. I mean, there's a bunch of them. God, can I tell you that my, when they came on screen, my first instinct, I had two things that they reminded me of. Mm. Number one, the Cenobites. And number two, the killer comes from outer space. And the sense that it was like, oh, there's like the short round one. There was like the tall one with the weird long face. And Butterball, where, where, yeah, chatter, exactly. And I was CD. like, and they they move in this sort of <laughs> all of our friends. Yes. Yeah. They move in this like undulating form. <laughs> you should start and they, Ben's social groups. <laughs> uh, and and it's it's great because you're like, here it is. Not only are we getting like a group of people, a Miyazaki right. thing, but we're also getting Miyazaki's depiction of the elderly, which is like always such a joy to behold. And he yeah. loves a sort of collection of crones with like yes. humor and, you know, delight and all this. I don't know. You but know. also a collection. He loves like a character a that motley. is a grouping of, yeah, yes. yeah, be yeah. they verbal or not, be they sort of group mindy or independent, but like, I mean, this movie has like four different masses yes. in a way, you know? I think it's got like six because there's the the parakeets. They're the the sort of the creatures that look like the Doctor Who adipose. Yeah, yeah the little souls. Yeah. They're the maids. Yeah. Who are the other ones? The frogs become a oh, sure. mass. Yes. The herons become a mass. The yes. pelicans become a mass. Yeah. yeah right. Um, I guess there's four of, different types of birds. A lot of right. Yeah. I will say yeah. my favorite character in this film I'm just going to say it right now. Mm. Best part of the film is there's a shot where we first see the old women walking and they pass by a little staircase and there's a little old man sitting, sitting on the yeah. stairs. He doesn't move. You're like, oh, that's just a background thing. And at the last second, he just does one <laughs> little tiny <laughs> yeah, wave. He yeah. does a little tiny wave. And then we never see that man again because I don't think it's even the older guy that teaches him. I was about to say, is it not that guy? I don't think it is. Okay. Maybe it is. I have I'm the like, movie right here. I'm now going to watch Wow, wow, wow. Wait, you have the movie? Screener awards voter. Oh my God, he's a critic. Yeah. JD, he's an awards voter. I don't know if you forgot about yeah, that. I will don't get shit. Yeah, but awards voters. Oh, oh, excuse me. Do you want a Nyad water bottle? Please, please take my water bottle. Yeah, listen, I, I could tell you about the... Um, uh, I heard that Nyad water bottle, by the way, was lying about how much water it can contain. Go on, JD. <laughs> Sorry, I had to make that joke. Oh, what's it called? Uh, what's the... Um, Rachel Brod, uh, <laughs> the TV show, Catskills, comedian, New York. The marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Marvelous. I don't know if this uh, It's a brief aside. Yeah. As a, and just what we need right now is a marvelous Mrs. Maisel aside. Yeah. As a current Emmy this, voter yes. and a WGA voter, I get a lot of uh, screeners and things like that. Mm -hmm. For years, the marvelous Miss Maisel would send like somehow a full on 
like package, like a parcel yeah. to every voter, yeah. every person. They would basically send like an Upper West Side apartment. Like some of these <laughs> fucking studios, the money they spend is, it's it's sickening. Yeah. You like, would open, it's truly awful. You would open the box that was Santa Claus technology because right. more stuff would come out of it right. than could possibly right. be like, inside of it. How could this work? Well, yes. To this day, I still have Marvelous Miss Maisel poker chips on my yeah. desk that I'm like, these are too nice to throw away, but there's no context that I could we ever use I want you to these. think of Margaret every time you play poker. I mean, the wildest one is. of all time was uh, when Fox slash Disney sent out the giant box of food to all the critics and voters for Nomadland. <laughs> and they were like, here, it's the thing she doesn't have in the movie. Right. Oh, my God. They should have sent a bucket to poop in. That would have been We got good. you fresh produce. From Wild. our partner at like Whole Foods. Like, I, I like also, it when they lean in. You know? I'll also like, say yeah. I've never gotten one of those and been like, oh, I got to vote for Miss Mason. <laughs> <laughs> That's the ultimate truth of this is you might be like, wow, I still drink out of my Nyad bottle, but yeah. not like... <sighs> And that's why Jodie Foster was the winner of best. You know, it's like, no, why would you ever do that? Uh, Whatever. Okay. Okay. Back to Boy and the Heron. Sorry, that was a brief aside. um, I did hear that G-Kids is sending out herons to all voting members, though. um, Yes, Yes. but it's scary. Yeah. And they they say, like, pretentious things. Like, yeah. No, they're they're sending out a heron costume so you can be a little weird old man. That would would be good. The heron hoodie. Will you go on the record and say that if you they send you one, David, you will vote for the boy in the heron? We already did. It was one best animated feature in the New York Film No, Critics David, Circle. that's smart. Actually, establish a timeline yeah, on good, this smart. episode that people don't know that we're recording this in August. So that when you finally do bang your giant gavel in your barrister's wig and that's decree... Smart. I have said I'm going to be the chair of the Critics Circle probably at some point because I'm the vice chair right oh, now. Wow. People are going to sit on you. I have said I want a gavel. <laughs> I want a gavel. Because we don't have one. And I'm like, I need a gavel. What you like, need, I'm a big survivor head. You need a torch. A, a torch. Or an immunity idol, no. maybe. Yeah. Every it movie, would be funny if every like, it's mo- like, Nyad has the immunity idol. So <laughs> actually, it's going to win. <laughs> every movie gets a torch and you snuff the ones that don't win. Yeah. It would be a lot of torches. Um, would you, if, if they gave you a, a gavel on the condition that you wore the barrister wig, would you accept? Yes. Okay. Um, no bits back. So while he's at this home, yes, there are these four lovely crones uh, mm-hmm. tooling around, but there's also a, a mysterious gray heron. Uh, yes. Uh, that is chilling. It's out. a little aggressive. I wouldn't say chilling. I'd say the, the heron's got aggressive vibes he from gets, the beginning. And there is also, of course, a giant ruined castle that's mm. on the grounds where they're like, yeah, you know, avoid that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> no, don't go over there. Also, have do you have you heard the thing that uh, Toshio Suzuki has said about the characters in the film? No. What do you mean? I don't know. Miyazaki <laughs> is the boy. Okay. He is the heron. Suzuki is the heron. Suzuki says that this is what the film was about, that Miyazaki is the boy, that... So he's, after we talked all about how you don't really want to lay it out, Suzuki's like, well, here's my read. He's the boy. I'm the hero. Yeah, but he's just offering and then Takahata, his read. Takahata is the grand uncle. Is the grand uncle. Yeah. yeah, sure. That's interesting. Because obviously and, the easiest way to watch this movie is you're like, Miyazaki is the grand uncle. This is about his legacy, about blah, blah, blah. But Miyazaki's probably like, what? That guy? That guy's fucking old. I'm not that guy. I'm the boy. Yeah. I'm full of vim and vigor. And what's apparently interesting is that uh, apparently Suzuki had to because Miyazaki was having trouble writing the granduncle because of his sorrow having lost Takahata, sure. mm. is that he started, he was like, refocused around the heron, and then the heron became this character that evolved and became, um, you know, because they have this really aggressive relationship. Because in, in the beginning here, the heron is scary. Yes. And it's like evil, and it's doing the heron voice 
and screaming at people at him and threatening him in strange ways. Yes. It's sure. scary. I and then eventually the they become like not friends. I was gonna say like uneasy they, they have an uneasy ally thing, which I yeah. really like. It's never becomes a buddy movie of like, no. okay, okay. We both have one of the same things. They're always kind of annoyed at each other. Do yeah. we have any uh understanding of how Boy in the Harem became the American title? That's just what and, they decided to call okay. it because they thought how do you live was a too inscrutable a title for the American audience. Because do any of the other films have a title that is not a direct yes. translation? Okay. Lots of them. Do. Really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Like uh, Castle in the Sky is called Laputia. Yeah. Right. 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 You know, in, um, or whatever. You know, yes, they often have yeah. totally, and obviously okay. like Spirited Away is called The Spiriting Away of Sin and Chihiro. There's stuff like that mm. where I will say, I think they the title, simplified. I think The Boy and the Heron undersells what the film is I, about. I do too. It puts well, a weird boy, focus a on... That I, only. I think if you're a generic so American audience, be called Grand like, Uncle's Dreamscape Adventure. Well, that kind of gives up the ending. <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, I think it should be called uh, The Boy versus the Parakeets. I mean, How Do You Live is just such an evocative, of course. Title. But like Magic Rock Castle. Yeah. I if it was That's called kind of fun. Sure. Castle in the water. Mm. Castle in the ground. How He's do like, you this say is part the of name my castle in a place of yeah. the little bubbly spirits? How do you say their name? Wara Wara. I would call the movie and introducing Wara Wara. <laughs> they were really the breakouts for you? Absolutely. Did you not see the delightful floating creatures? No, I saw that, that literally yeah. took like a big deep breath and then floated into the sky. Yeah. That's like my, I love that. Um, okay, so uh, Mihito's uh, aunt is pregnant with Let, a child. Let's also say just even from the introduction of the hair gun, you're like, the fuck? Why does he have teeth? Yes. And before the full transformation is happening, you do have the very unsettling effect where you'll like see the nose start to slip under the beak. Right. Yes. And you're like, why is there the a eyes face slip out of inside the eyes. of his yeah. mouth? Yeah. But you're also like, I love this. Yes. I, yeah. At least I am. No, I no, no. I, yeah. I was, yeah, it's cooking for me, but uh, it, it is, it is, Deeply upsetting. Yes, it's very yeah. upsetting. So, okay, so his dad's basically abandoning him here because yes. he's kind of like, I'm going off to work. Busy yeah. to make airplane canopies. As yes, you and his dad makes airplane canopies. Yeah. yeah. As you referenced earlier, he they have a car, which yes. is unusual. He drives him to school. That's no good for him. Yes. He has a horrible experience at school, so bad that he hits himself in the head with a rock Yes, and starts bleeding. Repeatedly. To try and like... Get out of school, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I think is just, that the read you had on it that see, he was trying to get out of school. I'm trying to remember it exactly how it like develops now, but right, it's after he's bullied, right? Like the kid fights him. He's I, bullied, but I see him as being so distraught. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. That, it, it's a classic. I'm trying to feel something. Right. I think right. it's self harm, really, yeah, yeah, more yeah, than no, calculated. Oh, yeah, that he's so angry and so he's got this grief that he has not yeah. processed. He doesn't know where to put it, right. and it comes out. It's in a physical he's flashing back yes. to the flames as well. Obviously, you keep you keep seeing the the, the weird digital flamey stuff. Yes, and he's having these visions of his mother. And I think it's this grief that's not been processed. Yes. And I think they reference at the end is that's why he's like, I can't accept this, this honor because I'm, I have malice. I have flaw. I've done this thing. And it's like part of his, everyone has these scars sure. that are within themselves. And mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, he, he, he hits a rock into his head and makes himself bleed. And it's then very nasty. everyone, yeah. And everyone in the home tries to care for him and take care of him. Um, but at the same time, his, uh, his aunt is pregnant and he has a strange relationship with her because she's new mom, mm -hmm. but he's has not yet processed the loss of his 
Yeah, and she's not mean or anything. She's quite no. kind, but it's right. The yeah. dynamic is so. Yeah, he's so twelve. Fraught. He's going yeah. through all this, stuff, you know. Uh, and then he visits her. That's what happens next, right? It's like he visits her because like he hasn't visited her, and mm -hmm. the old ladies are like, "You have to go visit." Yeah, they like, like. Yeah, they talk to each other. Yeah, but it's like a very cold relationship. Um, and then that's when he he discovers the he finally follows the heron. And then makes it to the castle that he cannot get into. He crawls into the castle. It's this weird ruin. Yeah. The old ladies come get him out. And they're like, don't fucking go in there. Yeah. Then he hits himself in the head with the rock. Right. Then he's bedridden and he has a big bandage. Yeah. And, the and Aaron, a cool undercut to accommodate the scar. Very true. It looks is kind of very looks true. kind of cool now. Yeah. And uh, then the heron's being a pain. So he's like, I'm going to fight the heron. And he swings like a stick. You know, he like goes yeah. and challenges the heron and swings a stick at him. And that's when the heron's like, all right, you know, good job. Uh, and they sort of have their first kind of showdown, right? I yes? think so. Yeah. And uh, the heron's like, your mom wants you. You got to go find your mom. Yeah. And you're, you're, and does the heron's there? So I, I don't know what the order of events is, but he, basically the, the heron's like, your mom's still alive. Yeah. Yes, and the boy's like, no, it's not. Her. Like, this is yeah. horrible of you. And the heron's like, no, no, it's just human trickery. Like, you're, you know, you're, you just got to go get your mom. Yeah. Um, he faints. Uh, I think he, he, they say, "Did you see her body?" Right. Yeah, right. which is like its own. You don't know this classic human trick. Yeah, and it's like such a it's such a cruel thing to say to a child, yeah. right? Is it's like, "Did you see her body?" And then like that brings up, I'm sure, all of these things for this kid who's like. No, when you're a kid, you don't witness death in that regard. It's like shielded from you. You're sure. it's taken away from you. I mean, it's like the heron's going full. Let me be frank on him. Um, he says, "Come to think of it, you never did is, see my body." Did, oh my gosh, that's one of the things he says. I, you know that video better than I. Yeah, because it's my audition piece. <laughs> Every year, I go and perform it for the Juilliard judges. I'm going to say this with all due respect to yeah, Miyazaki-san. No and his wonderful artistry. But at this point, the heron is saying, like, your, your presence is requested. It's like bashing yeah. his wings around. And his eyes are bulging out of his beak. Yeah. Uh -huh. And his nose, which looks like balls. Looks like a big old ball sack. Sure. Can we, can we just agree on that? This was the thing you the say big, with respect to me as Akisan? Exactly. I, I don't want to imply that I don't, like, appreciate his artistic but choices. you think he has a scrotum nose that's coming out from under his beak? Uh, yeah, I just want to make sure I don't everyone remember agrees that. with me. Yeah. Okay, well, didn't, uh, that didn't read as. Okay, nuts. well, how about I show you guys an image and okay. you guys can tell me if I'm crazy for thinking this looks like balls. Flip it around. It just lets, uh, you know, he's okay. picking out the knife. Okay. Uh, <laughs> this, is the section, his... this is the section of the podcast where we wait for David to find. It's kind of, kind of. In that one shot, I mean, even that. Uh, yeah, right? here's I'll get the you another one. Here's then. what I'm gonna say with all due respect. I need more wrinkle. With all yeah, I mean, look at maybe it's a young ball sack, smoothest scrotum I've okay. ever seen. Okay, okay. I, uh, <laughs> I with all due respect to you, David, it worries me that that's what you think. I'm not saying that's exactly okay. what they look okay. like. Okay. Did you think it looked like that, or did you think Miyazaki's intent was? I hey, can't believe chicken balls is going to come out of this heron's nose. mouth. Are like, your balls wrapped in a beak? Um, it would be funny if I was like, you know, before having sex with a new person, I was like, just my penis is totally normal. <laughs> yeah. My balls will be emerging from a beak. 
I can't. I'm I'm appalled. They will slowly cough out. And they do have eyes above them. But they cannot see. They are starting to bite teeth, but the teeth don't hurt. God, what? A, they're large. They seem too large for the beak they're coming out of. Guys, this is the last film of Miyazaki. This well, is he such, did it. This he is such a, an, a bow and arrow. We can't do this. this is we can't do this to Miyazaki. To David. Quite crucially, he takes some of the discarded feathers from the heron. And I know it's ironic that I'm the one saying we well, have to You said to it was a no-bits episode. Listen, you called it. That's what's honestly scariest. Mm. Is that wasn't a bit. That was David was serious. David was serious. I, yeah. Um, he had tears sorry, in his yes. eyes when he said David, that. he it, makes the arrow. He makes the arrow and he makes the uh, arrow from, you know, the the flechette, the the yeah. the, the tip, uh, the not the tips, the other side from uh, the the heron's feathers, which is going to be sort of an important weapon later, yes. right? That he has mm-hmm. his own magic to use against him, basically. Uh and then uh he goes off uh, the lady the, the, then the lady of the house disappears right that's yes. the big inciting incident yes. mm-hmm. it's and, not like he goes off on his own just because the heron's being such a pain in the ass to him and it's I think, once she disappears he's like okay I guess I must now travel into this place and I think mm-hmm. that's a really important moment yeah. because he sees her walk into the woods and this is someone who he doesn't hate but he is feeling a level of separation from because of his situation. Mm-hmm. Right. And yet he feels some sense of responsibility for this person who he knows yeah. he does care for to some degree and wants to have in his life. Even if right now he has this indignance about the situation he is in, what draws him into the adventure is going to help this person who he knows right. his dad loves and who he knows is trying to love him. Mm-hmm. And it's his mother's sister. Like, yeah. That's important, obviously. Like, um, But I think that's very important. Like you said, this is not a... He's not going into this selfishly. Right. In fact... He's not trying to just escape or run away. Yeah. That's also the moment that sends us into the adventure also is that... Yeah, we can get... We'll get there in a minute, but he... He then goes into the woods or he... Everyone's trying to look for her. Yeah. Right? That's what happens next. Yeah, and then he goes to the big creepy, you know, archway tunnel that lights up with all the books. The maid is with him going like, you can't go. Like, yes. you know, like all that. Uh, the mirror made Kiriko. And yes. then the the castle opens for him. And the heron summons him inside. And that's when the heron is like, come in. Right. Get in here. Come hang out, you know. Adventure. I don't know what the exact line is. That's sort of just a rough, that's my dub of it. But also, um, so much, it, it, there is such a uh, sourness to his tone yes. at all times. The it's Aaron? not even like, yeah, it's not even like, oh, he's kind of cranky and he's got like a voice. Like, he's very yeah, he's he's antagonistic. He's not a little stinker. He's worse than that. Yes. There's something upsetting about There's him. something like kind of li- vile. Yes. Now, my, yes. I wonder if the dub will soften that at all. But, but it sounds yeah. like our Pats is going full, yeah, asshole with it. Little asshole. He's a little asshole. Again, this so this is 45 minutes into the movie. Mm-hmm. Is that he's finally inside the castle. Yes. He's in this big room with the sun painted on the floor. Mm-hmm. His mother supposedly is like lying on a couch in front of him, right? The heron is there. This is the first time I think a lot of the audience is thinking, like, okay. Now the movie's we're in a Miyazaki movie in right. another world. Sure. Like, okay. He, uh, he tries to touch the mother and she like is made out of water. It's such a cool Yeah, it's just image. like a jello She kind reacts of, like yeah. a puddle yeah. almost. She melts. Yeah. She melts yeah. and it's yes. horrific. Yeah. Yeah. And it's again this and he's moment. Mad. He's like, you can't do this to me. Yeah. Like, yeah, but yeah. some moments you think of a kid who lost his his mother, and then it's like, there she is, and just 
wanting to touch her and then her turning into this like good it's like horrific yeah it's yeah. horrible yeah yeah and that's what i think so yeah. interesting about this is that so much of what is drawing this character forward is this trauma and this scar mm -hmm. and it's not a sense of exploration that maybe a lot of young miyazaki heroes have but what's interesting, right, yeah. is it's not that he believes that his mom is alive mm -hmm. or that he believes he's good. It's that he's being told by this evil force. Yeah. If only you do more right now, you could yeah. get your mother back. Yeah. Which is such a an interesting take on that because I think there's a softer version of that where it's like, you know, the naivete of child and trying to, and then reality. Right. No, this is a, a dark voice, a dark voice inside the world that's trying to tell him if you just do more, you can get this thing back. I would say he almost reacts as if he he never fully believes it. Like, he is very wary of what the heron is selling him, even as he moves forward through this, which makes the sort of uh, jellification of the mom even more upsetting. Right. And where it's that's like, why, why put him through this whole fucking, yeah. And that's why he keeps bringing up Natsuko, his aunt, and the, mm -hmm. the his, his father's new wife, yeah. as being as important to him as this goal is because... She, she exists. And she is a tangible present thing. And his father loves her. Yes. And he brings that up yeah. as that's part of his motivation. So I have to do this for my dad also. Right. And that's such an interesting thing. That's what driving the character is. This thing that he's being taunted at to maybe you can solve this and this thing that is someone else's relationship that is not the thing that moved, but he knows that it's his responsibility to try to seek something there. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting motivation. Yeah. Because then they have this whole battle scene or fight between the yeah, heron and the boy. where he shoots the arrow at him and he actually, you know, yes, penetrates his... That's when he gets the beak. hole through the beak. Yes. yes. And, and that's the, the moment at which the heron starts actually being sort of a reluctant ally. His head, head, the, the thing is... He's fully vomited his own head out of his he's, bird mouth. He's being a huge pain in the ass, but in a way that's kind of threatening and scary. And then finally, like after this battle, all the way up at the top of the stairs, mm -hmm. like there's you know, this shadowy old man yeah. who says like foolish bird, like be his guide. Yeah. And you're like, bitch. Like, where were you before? And he keeps... Shadow man? Yeah. It's grand uncle. I know, he, I know. He keeps doing this in the movie, popping in and being like, I told you, stop trying to kill or torment this boy. Uh-huh. You're supposed to be his guide. And the heron will go like, yeah, okay. And then the minute he's gone, he's like, fuck you. <laughs> like, and, you know, he never really turns around on it. And to me, that's a reading of, from what I'm projecting to that from my own life, is that's that constant struggle with the our own traumas and the things that we're trying to mm -hmm. reckon with and the things inside us that are taunting us to move forward. And at some point, those things are both our antagonist and also our guide. And when Hariko, uh, 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 Mojito, sorry, uh, is able to assert some sort of control through this sort of magical fight with the the heron. That's also when the heron's willing to be like, okay, I, I guess I'm going to be your guide because you have some, you've gained enough um, self-ability that I have to sort of supplicate to you to a little bit. And this, this, this great force, this, you know, this, this legacy is telling me to also be your guide. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's a really interesting battle because that's so much of grief and trauma and loss is like this thing can both be an antagonist and it can be a right. guide. Yeah. Terrific point. It's sort of reminding me of another dynamic. Yeah. Um, Spawn and Violator. 
Uh, Griffin has a big thumbs up from the bathroom. Ben. Like like the thumbs up at the end of T2. I have Griffin's been trying thumb. to put my finger on who the fucking heroin reminds me of. You're totally right. Now, the difference, of course, is this is a little boy, not a dead, you know, you know, uh, secret agent who became a hell yeah. superhero or whatever <laughs> the fuck spawn. They're different in that sense. Yeah. It's funny how the movie Spawn, which you go, you went to see without me in theaters. I was very jealous. I yelled at Alex Perry for weeks about it. Wait. The original Spawn? Yeah, the, the 90s Spawn. Like the Alamo, oh, Alamo I, did oh, like I a was, retro. I was, my brain relax, was so scrambled. Relax, I was relax, like, relax. wait, that came out in like 1995. You guys went to see it. I rewatched it recently just for fun. What a, what a picture, obviously. Yeah. Um, like was almost best work. A, a, a brave you haven't revisited the past, sir i haven't i haven't revisited spawn since i saw it in theaters but in yes the 90s violator also. is technically there to help spawn understand things right but he's also kind of a villain i mean he is the villain yeah and he's mean the whole time he sucks he's beyond that he sucks <laughs> So hard. I wish there was some sort of cue that they could give us that he was. A, that, that's what's interesting is like Spawn soft plays that he's a villain because uh, they name him. What do they name him? Violator. And what's he look like? A little clown. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Got, and it, got like, it. Got it. Like two seconds into the movie, he's like, ah, oh, oh, I, I farted. Oh no, that was a wet one. You know, like pulling his pants out and being like, do you see poo on the? You know, it's like we're talking about how much clown sucks. Yeah. When I saw that movie for the first time, I contended to my father that Legazamo was robbed of an Oscar nomination. Mm-hmm. And we saw it in 35mm a couple months yes, ago. It did. Uh, as it was intended. As it was intended. A gorgeous 35mm. <laughs> and the second Legazamo came on screen, what you're describing basically, his like off-camera dialogue, I turned to Ben, I was like, this is the worst performance. It's... The most insufferable characterization in the history of cinema. He's disgusting. He, I, and I mean... he sucks. He's a bad <laughs> I haven't yeah. seen it since He's the 90s. Hang. I still think it's good. That movie is too fucking awful to hate in a way. You're kind of like, I love this. There are moments of genuine something. There's some moments of something, and then there's moments like where they go to hell, and yeah. it looks like you know PlayStation minus one graphics. <laughs> yeah, but, and you're but, like, these sweeties put this in theaters. Like this is what they had for. And us. it was directed by the guy who basically was one of the two dudes responsible for the CGI breakthroughs at ILM that allowed Jurassic Park, where they were like, well, you've cracked the code on computer effects. Right. Go show us everything you've got in this movie. He also did like the T-1000 and yeah. all that. Right. And AZ, he, AZ Dippy? AZ Dippy. Mark AZ Dippy. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Spawn miniseries. Mark AZ Dippy miniseries coming 2027. 20, we could do a Spawn episode. But the Heron... If Ben chooses it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think there's, it'd be... A, there, it's a rich text. I remember... <laughs> I think I, there's a lot to say. <laughs> there's a lot to say, clearly. Not, not just the uh, that we just said. There's yeah. more. A lot more. Absolutely. I remember there being a ton of behind-the-scenes featurettes about how hot the costume is that Leguizamo had to be in and how yes. it was so... It definitely it doesn't look comfortable. Four He's also walking in a squat the whole time. Yes, the whole thing is fucking insane. You I sort of admire it. the performance except for that it's the worst. It's the worst. You're sort of like, I can't believe how committed, to he, committed he is to this. Yeah. It's unbelievable. He had a really strong take on the character, which is, what if the audience hated Beetlejuice? Everyone hates Beetlejuice in the movie too. It's well, beyond, the, yeah, the movie. I'm saying it, the, no, audience, no, the audience. Every time he comes like, on screen, it's go like, away. Fucking come on. Well, no. The worst thing about Spawn is that he has to deliver 
all of the exposition. Yeah. He's the only character in that movie that knows what's going on. Until uh, Cagliostro comes in the last 20 minutes and is just like, here's everything that hasn't made sense for the That's last right. two hours. He's hanging out. I forgot about Cagliostro. But he doesn't but start explaining stuff until no, late. No, usually he's like, Spawn, you have to listen to me. And Spawn's like, what? And then violently Fuck you, like, I'm Spawn. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> Truly, he will enter scenes just doing that. One of the original conflict movies. Yeah, there's two Before things I have time. to say, we're, and we still have like an hour plus left of Boy and Heron plot to, to to untangle. Yeah, we really <laughs> and need two to, hours of Spawn plot. Uh, we need to un. No, that movie is a tight seventy-one minutes long. <laughs> it's got to? two hours worth of story. <laughs> when they say feature film, they spell feature differently. <laughs> you know, it's like when they F E E T. How KFC had to turn into like just KFC. Sure. They're like, this is a feature. <laughs> sure. It's a PHILM. <laughs> Uh, we need to order lunch because okay. we're going to have to record another episode right after this one. Mm -hmm. uh, so let me know what you guys want. And uh, what's the other thing? Oh, we have to record another episode right after this one. Right. That's what it is. Okay. Thank you for reminding. So he gets transported to a beach uh -huh. and he sees all these ships sailing by. What we Go have ahead. not mentioned yet, only in passing, is that the heron is a man. He is a little, there's a little man inside the heron. He yeah. has a big nose and crazy teeth. Yeah. But he is un male pattern ball ass. He is a little DeVito inside the hair. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's someone he's even got a little bit of, he's he's DeVito meets Polito, perhaps. He's got a little John Polito in him. There's a little gonzo in there. There's a little gonzo. David is Gonzo's uh, it's, yeah, but Gonzo's so sweet though. Yeah, he's yeah. not sweet. But even even DeVito, there is an inherent cuteness to DeVito, even when he's playing his most unsavory type and a little like, come on, I'm not all bad. The heron feels like, is this guy just 100% unpleasant? Right, right, right. Like, why am I supposed to even root for this guy? But then he is also little. There's a little bit of monkey bone in the heron. A lot of yeah. monkey bone in the heron. Well, Miyazaki's favorite film of the 2000s. Yeah. And can I say this? I, Miyazaki I, goes hard against like Snow White for rotoscoping and all the stuff, but he's like, but monkey bone. Monkey bone was pure. Monkey bone was good. Um, I, I don't know if I'm going out on a limb here. The relationship between the boy and the hammer reminded me a little bit of Spawn and Violator. Do you know what I'm saying? So, here's what... trying to come up with an analog. Here's what he's confronted with. Do you guys with remember Spawn? When he arrives at the beach. <laughs> he's he's Diddy, stuck right? in a loop. A view of the one last boat. Oh, my God. No, what? no, no. What? <laughs> what? There, uh, Kariko is like, we should go back. Yeah, I mentioned that. And the... And he's like, no, we still have to go get Natsuko. Yes, he's going to get his He his, could have gone aunt. back, and he's like, I'm not gonna. No, of course not. He's more, Okay, he lands on a beach. Boats in the distance. Yes. There's a bunch of pelicans. Yes. Looking like normal pelicans. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, relative yeah, to... They the, are yeah, sure, the animal, yes. the pelican, yes. right? You know, uh, there's no briefs. I was about to make that same stupid joke. Oh, I he goes and it. sees... It's just so Miyazaki. This like, you know, there's a big golden gate and then there's just like a sort of cave behind it yes. and like a black hole. And he goes and gazes at it. Mm -hmm. And this is what makes the pelicans go insane yes. and start screaming and talking to him in human language. Like, this is the point, I think, where I am beginning to be like, I don't know if I can handle yeah. the world building. It might be too aggressively surreal for me. I was like, feeling that a, a bit. Yes. Uh, like, I like it more than a bit as imagery and I like it as atmosphere. Mm -hmm. But I'm also still like, I am watching like a film where I need to grasp what's going on. It's right? funny because I had the opposite is the moment that moment happened. I was like, and here we go. 
the movie begins. Well, I mean, this I definitely is do have that thing of like, like, yeah, like, okay, we're in Miyazaki territory. Like, okay, fantasy, animals. Like, sure, that's what he does. I should feel comfortable right now. But it does feel like more aggressively surreal than ever. And I will say also, because there's a lot of these um, incredible animators that come from this sort of background of realism um, or just have totally different styles. And there's a couple animators who are known for their very specific detail. There are so many giant swarms of things that are so Mm. brilliantly hand animated in this. Think about animating every one of these. Really, really hard. Pelicans and every... It's like absolutely, absolutely amazing. When the wrapping, the paper is sort of flung around his head. Yeah. yeah. But then, so then the pelicans all swarm him. They do. Uh, We've also missed a scene where before that, um, he's swarmed by frogs. Mm -hmm. That happens right in the real world. Yes. Yes. And Uh, when we say swarming, he's like enveloped by them. And it happens again. And then these pelicans push him through this gate. But they're also like screaming in human. Yes. Like, Human Jesus in in whatever English yeah. like Japanese it's also yes. Dan Stevens yeah and then a, a badass pirate queen yes storms in and right. saves him with a fiery whip when I saw her I was like David's gonna love this character uh, yeah Florence Pugh's doing her in the uh, in the dub I believe oh, okay I was trying to figure out who uh, and then she has this like magical whip she also sets aside her sailboat and it's like the seas are really rough and really crazy. Like it's like really a, a, a rough seas going on mm-hmm. and she jumps out and then forms this like magical circle that and then gives him very specific instructions like keep looking at the cave, do not look behind yourself, step backwards and then now you are safe. And it's like, okay, this person who knows this world and understands it and can sort of take him under her wing. The Did cave we, is the void, right? Yes. Like it's, it's, you can't define it further than it's just, it's like, if you go in there, there's nothing right. else. Yes. Did, did we did we brush over him needing to whittle the cork, basically, to fill in the heron's beak from the damage he himself caused? Later. No, that happens later. Oh, it happens later. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he gets in her boat. They go over the bar, much like in the great Craig Gillespie film, The Finest Hours. Your and then it's one. calm. Yeah. Yes. And then they're like sailing... And there's weird mythical creature. She captures like a fucking manatee monster from the sea. Mm -hmm. You're kind of like, can someone finally explain what's going on? Right? Like the the movie has slowed down. And she doesn't really, but she does say like in this world, most people are dead. Yeah. Like that's her kind of big takeaway, right? Mm -hmm. She's like, all of those ships are illusions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she knows he's on this quest. And again, it's just so much Miyazaki imagery. Like these sort of like these people who look like the spirits from Spirited Away, they're like black jelly creatures yeah. mm-hmm. with like oh, eyes. Right. Another yeah. they're like swarm right basically. that are like uh, yeah. rowing boats. Yeah. Right. They're like, they're like hollow people. But like no one is like, this is the afterlife, or no. this yeah. is where people go after, you know, like whatever, like after something or other, right? Like, the, yeah. It's not like, and Miyazaki does an interesting thing where he pulls a lot of imagery and a lot of concepts from like uh, Shinto tradition and all this stuff. Sure. But then Obviously also, he does that in Spirited Away. Yes. And, right, yeah. But then is adapting it and creating his own version of it as well. And he doesn't name or specify too many things. He lets them be these ideas where you sort of kind of glean what they are and what they represent and what they're from. But it's never, a character is never going those are the dead people and what they do is this and what they feast on is this and when they did it like like you just sort of get these glimpses of them and these these yeah. um, emotional responses Again, to them. Right. It's much like Spirited Away. It's like, yeah. 
who are on, who's on this train? Spirits. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Yeah. And then, yes, the Warawara show up after that. Mm-hmm. Little adipose, like you said, from Doctor Who, or yes. what's another blobby friend from... What they're like is the souls from Soul. That's true. Kind okay. of. Yeah. I thought of Kirby. Yeah. Kirby. Or Blobby. Blobby. Or the water babies from Elemental. You haven't, you clearly, it I, just shows that you me, haven't seen it. You're showing your ass on this it's one. It's disgusting that you would try to fucking, you know, fake your way through that movie. You gotta study Elemental. You gotta steep yourself. You know, the water people cry a lot too. They're very <laughs> emotional, so they cry a lot. The That's tears flood the their apartments. Of next level intellectual thinking going on. I haven't seen it. I'm sure it's great. Their high rise apartments so, are flooded, but I they don't movies. swim. They don't like swimming. They just walk through water and eat dinner on inflatable furniture. I would JD Amato and I love water. movies. Elemental's a movie. I'm sure I love it. Elemental like is a movie, right? It was classified as such by the FDA. Yes, although there was a lot of fighting. What are we talking about? Okay, she's on the pirate. Yeah, the Wawa Weewas show up. <laughs> the Wawa Weewas? The Warawaras. The, uh, sure. you know, the, the floating soul boys. Yes. They look very nice. Exactly. Oh, my God. Then she cuts open the giant fish for them. Mm-hmm. He helps. A bunch of guts come out. Yeah. And then she's like, yeah, this is for the little blobs to eat so they can fly. Okay. He goes to her house. Oh, wait, why'd you say like, I no, think no, this is no, a beautiful I moment. I, no, t- all right. I don't want to sound like I don't love these moments. I think I'm more just like w- the first time watching it. I'm like, okay, they, they watch it. They, they eat the fish guts from the weird sea monster so they can fly. Filing that away. I assume right. that will matter. What you realize in the end of this movie is like, yeah, sure. Maybe there's some dreamy logic to a lot of this stuff, but that's not what's important like okay. to the story being told. So that sort of leads to my my last sort of big depart- diversion that I want to take real quick. Uh, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> listen, go when ahead, you ask, you know what you signed go up ahead, for. Go ahead. How dare he do the podcast? Um, we're very good friends. We all know that. Listen. Um, okay, so I've been on part of why I was going so deep on Miyazaki stuff before this and Japanese cinema and all this stuff before this was part of a larger thing that I've been going through as a byproduct of my own career. So obviously I I think a lot of my uh, public projects are like a lot of like the weird like variety shows and things. But in the past five years, I'd say I'd, I've made most of my money as a writer and sure. writing stuff, even if a lot of that stuff has not seen the light of day. Hopefully. Remains in development. Yes. Um, I'll say here, book coming soon. Hey. Book coming soon. Been excited. Um, but uh, part of that process has been very interesting to me. And it, it, I went off a an evolution that was kicked off by a document that I was sent that I sent to all of you guys. Mm, this yeah. is the thing that I sent. Okay, right. I forgot about this. So this is... So, uh, I, wait, I don't get too excited on my... I don't, if you can just... Cause I would like to blind item the... It might spike the You levels. know what this document is? What is this document? Wait, wait, wait. Can I just say... There's I, a reason I sound the way I sound. I want to blind item the okay. company. Okay. It is a large streaming company that has a document that outlines for one how to pitch something to them right. basically to fit into their model. Yes. Yeah. So I was sent uh, this document at a certain point. Um, and these types of things float around a lot in the industry of, hey, uh, actually, here's how story works. Right. I'm going to say this document sucks. Is that fair? Are we all on the same page about this? <laughs> this one look at this good. document made it, me it boils despair. things down. 
Yeah. It makes it simple. So this document upset me. And one of the things that uh, upset me is that it uh, it doesn't suggest uh, this format for how stories work. It demands it. It says right. that if you are going to make a story this for us, this is what it is going to be. And it feels uh, retrofitted from analytics. We have identified the sim the commonalities between the things that audiences react to. The other thing is that it is loaded with imagery from shows that are not from this company, which is insane. Now, it has some, a few pictures of shows that this company's actually created. Mostly, it is not. Yes. This one show in particular, they're really foregrounding that is not their show and was not created, you know, through this kind of robotic pitch process. No. So one of the things that this document includes is also uh, it really heavily goes to bat for the Dan Harmon story circle. Which, which mm -hmm. is uh, which is really just a, a sort of simplified version of the hero's journey. Type, yes, you know. which yeah. is the, yeah. yeah, exactly. And that was a thing that was floating around in the industry a lot of like, oh, this is this rubric. Mm -hmm. So having gone to film school, I've read every one of these. I wonder how Harmon feels about that, honestly, given that he's like, that's how I process how to write a script. Yes. That's not like the rules it's a helpful, that everyone needs right. to follow. It's, right. it's not a, uh, it's not dogmatic. It yes. is a guide. Anyway. And anyway. this guide was extremely dogmatic and was extremely like, this is how you have to do it. And if you, if you bring us something that's not this, you're yeah. not doing it correctly. Right. Um, and having, well, stories are math and we all know this and yeah. technology is finally perfected. Plot armor, them. my favorite new phrase that you taught me. Yeah, plot armor. Yeah, well, having, gone through film school, I was forced to, you know, I, I've read all of my Joseph Campbell here. I've read my John Truby, mm -hmm. uh, the Save the Cat, this. when I, Back when I was in film school also, uh, so I was an animator in film school. That was like what I focused on, uh, on top of the live action writing directing stuff, is the big thing was like the Pixar rules. There are 22 mm -hmm. rules of st storytelling and whatever. And all this stuff, I feel like there's the a Matt trend. Trey Parker, NYU lecture that gets circulated all the time. Yes. Make sure that the fire people in the bodega. Well. It's a Pixar rule. It's all great, but I, <laughs> I had a big reaction formation to that, which is I have a very complicated relationship with my own life with rules. Mm -hmm. I, w I'm, I was very um, adherent to them and felt very uh, terrified by them growing up as a Midwestern Catholic boy mm -hmm. and... So I, when someone gives me a set of rules, if I don't agree with them, it creates a schism inside me where mm -hmm. I get very like, okay, now I need to break these rules because yeah. like something's wrong here. And so I went down this tirade uh, or this path of thinking where I'm like, I think the hero's journey is bullshit. I think the, uh, the 3X structure is bullshit. I think that is a, uh, my POV and I think, you know, other people have talked about this where it's like, I think the hero's journey uh, as it's been, uh, adapted because the Joseph Campbell stuff is actually a little more broad and like what it's him looking at stories and being like what you know it's it, and same with, with Harmon is finding the commonalities by observing the things that organically happen and how we process them but rather than the, imposing when those become templates on which stories are that's where things get dictated fucked. I think it's also my POV is that there is a imperialistic background to that hero's journey right because a lot of it comes yeah. from Greek and Roman epics which a lot of those stories, um, having taken Latin for eight years and in into college as well, is like oh, computer science, <laughs> Latin. It's my, uh, it's uh, you know my uh, uh, credentials here. But even right, just the notion that they're rooted in people, quote unquote, conquering things. Well, the idea is that some of these stories are there's a character that wants something, yeah. and there's going to be things that are going to get in their way, and they have to fight through them. And sometimes those fights are going to be so bad and horrible they're going to feel bad, but actually in the end it's going to be good. And at the end, it's justified. You're going to get what you want because yeah. you went through all these trials to get this thing. Um, and that's a, a gross 
simplification of it, mm-hmm. but somehow, sometimes that's how it reads. And then there's a big part of this, which is, I think in Western American storytelling, conflict is at the heart of all of this. You can't have story without conflict is the thing that's told over and over again. So I got into a big discussion with my dear friend, Aaron Covington. Uh, do you guys know Aaron? He's the host of uh, Black Guys on White Movies. He's also the writer of Creed and mm-hmm. he's a wonderful writer of his own right. Where I was like, I think there's other story structures and the fact that we're saying that this is the only story structure, I think is bullshit. I think it's sort of like American-centric thinking and imperialistic and all this stuff. And so he was sort of testing me and trying to get me into it. At the same time of all of this, a side thing that's been going on in my life is for the past like five to eight years, I've been diving into the world of like amateur haiku universe and trying to get published in the haiku space. Ben looks shocked. You've never mentioned this to me. This is the thing that... You're absolutely out of your mind. I love it. Once a year, I try to submit haikus for publishing. I'm yet to be successful, so I'm very amateur. Um, But I really, I I go down the path of all this stuff um, because it's really interesting to me. Which is a very strict format. No. Mm -hmm. So, okay. My brief thing is that uh, what people think of haiku is actually not um, what modern haiku has evolved into, especially in the English sense. Okay. When you think of haiku, you probably think of 575. Miracle. Yeah. Uh, uh, what modern haiku has evolved into has nothing to do with syllable counts in that same way. The idea of haiku at its core, and I could be getting this all wrong, and maybe that's why I'm an amateur and nothing ever gets published, but is you're trying to create the juxtaposition of two images as um, taking... You know, the idea of there's this, there's a separation in the haiku that divides into two parts. Mm-hmm. And so you're taking two of these images, two of these ideas that you put them next to each other. And in their objective nature, putting them together will tell you a larger truth about the world um, or about this moment. Uh, one of the exercises that they do in haiku sometimes is you go, all right, think of a moment that's important to you. Now look to your left, what do you see? Look to your right, what do you see? Do those tell the story of this moment? And haiku is about trying to be as efficient as possible with trying to distill these moments down to these, these, as few words as possible, as illuminating words as possible to tell this story. A big part of haiku is a kigo, which is like a the the a word that will sort of cue you into the uh, the season, either in a literal sense or an emotional sense. And there's like the kareji, which is like the cutting word, the word that slices through mm-hmm. things and changes the tone and pace at the end of it. Um, so at the same time, I'm going through all this stuff and learning about the history of haiku. Uh, and that's when I stumble upon uh, there's a thing that is uh, in um, like Eastern cultures and like Japanese culture, uh, uh, Kisho Tenketsu, which is the story structure that a lot of uh, Japanese writers and things like that are grown up to learn, which is uh, key is the introduction, show is development, and then 10 is different than in America where we have like I mean, conflict. the call. No, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, right. Well, 10 is the twist. It's a change. Sure. Something changes. Mm-hmm. And then Ketsu is the conclusion. And what's interesting about Kisho Tenketsu is that it, it's a different frame of thinking about story. Now, you can take stories that are fall within the hero's journey. You can, you can apply all of these to any story, right? Just because you're taking a story and putting it within this context doesn't change that they can all have a lot of these things. What's interesting, though, is that the primary driver of the plot is not conflict. It is not that you have to have this conflict and then it has to be resolved. Mm-hmm. And with a lot of the Miyazaki films, there is a lot of plot that moves without conflict being the driving factor. Processing change rather than conquering conflict. And the, the, the second and third act is something will change. 
It's not that someone you finally got into the foe and you're going to have it out yes, and something will happen. Not usually some straightforward villain to defeat and, or anything like that. And even in the movies where there is a villain, it's not that we're going to have it out and then either we're going to get our way or we're not. Mm -hmm. It's usually that something just happens and the universe, something shifts in the universe and then the film ends and that shift connects back to the themes of what's been going on in the beginning and the middle, which I think is a really interesting way to think about story. And this is another film where I think conflict, though there are parties that are working against each other, it is not the driver of the plot. And I think that's really interesting. And the, the other thing is that in my sort of adventure of all the story stuff, there are tons of other story structures that come from other cultures that do not rely on uh, conflict or that sort of like a character. Because I, I also had the thing where I'm like, I don't even know if that a character has to go through change for it to be a story, which is usually a thing where it's like, well, we all know in story, at least a character has to change. And my POV is like, I don't think that is true. Think about fables. In fables, rarely do the characters change. What changes is the audience's POV. I love fables. Right, but... You refer to Bill Willingham's fables. And then, yeah, exactly. Um, but at the end of a fable, a lot of the characters don't know what's different. They don't, they don't accept the change. The this audience is, reading it this is the change. very interesting. I would have to think about that. But yes, anyways. I'm sure you're right. Uh, yes, and then there's right. also like, you know, ethological stories where it's like, oh, it's a story that's telling you about how something was created. And so it's not about a change from the characters, it's about a change with the universe that happens. So anyways, that's all to say, I think there's a lot of fixation and a lot of the way that we as Americans read films is like you're saying, okay, great. The, the fish is being cut and the warwar eat it. I have to hold on to that because that's going to be a piece of... Right, that'll, that'll this be will, important. Later, he'll use the thingy to do the thingy. You don't introduce that character but, if that character doesn't have... The, it, Chekhov's gun way of thinking. Sure. To if in the end, we need Chekhov, the warwar to fly up Chekhov to get a thing, and so we need Dan to feed Harmon. them fish to yeah. fly the thing, and good thing we learned that earlier. But now may I speak on this, this yes. same topic? Um, so the, the warwar introduced... Then he goes and he chills out with, um, what's her name, uh, uh, Kiriko in her house for a minute. And then they go outside and they see that the Warawara are now floating into the sky. Yeah. They've gotten turned into balloons and they're floating. And it's like, oh yeah, these are souls going to be born. And then a bunch of pelicans start eating the Warawara. And he's upset. And it's awful, right? It's like a bad thing is happening. Yeah. And then he starts like fighting the pelicans, right? And there's the fire and it's obviously like there's a boat, the fire, the boat catches on fire and he's upset. And then he goes to see this dying pelican. Yeah. Who will one day have the voice of uh, Willem Dafoe, I guess. Mm -hmm. Right? Oh, that's a great casting. And, you know, the pelican's like, we were brought here to eat the Warawara. Like, we're a solution to a problem that was created earlier. Because this is Miyazaki talking, maybe, I don't want to put words in his mouth, talking what about... What it feels like, like to you is... Yeah. yeah, like talking about, like, the creative process, for one, right, of, like... Well, I brought this in, but then this meant that made no sense. Then I brought that in, you know, then the old, like, you know, I swallowed a fly thing, right? Like, you know, yeah, we got the goats to eat right. the bamboo, but now we have goats everywhere, so we need snakes to kill the goats. So, you know, like, and also he's talking about the way our earth functions and, you know, what humans have done to it, I'm sure, right? Like, there's environmental yeah. thinking. But, like, I just also love that he's like, no, this is like roiling chaos of a man trying to, like, tweak something into perfection and it only makes things crazier and more surreal and hard to understand. Yes, and that, for it's me... For, for children. For me, when I saw this... Know, it's not really for yeah. children, but it sort of is. For me, my reading, right, is that this, this the fantasy world, right, yes. is the sort of subconscious. It's the mm -hmm. internal right. world right. of a person. And 
within that, we have all of these things that are fighting against each other. And there's a certain, there's this, this innocence and this, you know, joy and purity that I think the wire wire represent where it's like, oh, these, this right, sort little, of like little babies. Yeah, exactly. And then there's also these pelicans that have to keep that in check. Right. And those but are, why? I don't know. We came here because that's what we're supposed to do. Right. And that's so much of adulthood, right? Is we yes. have these things where you're like, why? You're like, why do I have to keep this aspect of my, but I do in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And it's not that that's bad. It's that that's part of a, job that these things have to do within ourselves to keep ourselves in check and it's like again it's not it's not necessarily that like oh this is going to lead to something in the plot but it's this moment for me that like is so beautiful and resonates and i'm like yes this is part of the experience this is how we live yeah this is part of it i think it's beautiful everything about this is beautiful it's the same thing with the heron yeah like where it's like why aren't you helping me and he's like because i'm a complicated little fucker I don't, I'm not here to help you. He's telling me maybe, but like, that's not my, you know, purpose in this dark story. story. Right. right, right. And yes, the after this is when they have the thing you were talking about, where they're fine. Kiriko's finally like, can the two of you just work together? Yeah. Like, come on, you can help him. And then, you know, he makes the cork thing, like you say, to sort of, you know, it sort of bridge the uh, He can no the, longer divide. fly because of the hole in right. the beak. Yeah. That moment's kind of funny because, uh, at first, after he plugs the hole, he's kind of like, fuck you. Yeah. And flies away. And right. then he's like, uh, actually, it's kind of blocking my sight. <laughs> right. Could you, sorry about all that stuff I just said. Yeah. Could you fix it? And then, I really love that moment. And to me, that's such, that resonated to me as such like a, to me, I'll have these scars or traumas or things that I've tried to reckon with, these parts of myself that I don't like, but that also are important to keep me driving forward. And then I'll find solutions to sort of clip the wings of those things to keep them from getting in my way. And then I'll realize like, okay, I can't totally just shut down this aspect of who I am internally, this thing that this does drive me in some way. So I have to give it some, I have to create this weird allyship with the things that are inside right. me that are, 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 are troublesome. And so I love that they have this weird relationship where it's like, he says, I'm not your ally. Yes. Like, he says it very blankly. Like, yeah. It's this internal thing that is pulling the boy on this journey, but also is an antagonist. And then the boy stops it and is like, great, then you're not going to be, you're going to have to have your ability anymore. And then the heron's like, I sort of need it to help you. And also, right. like, I need it. And then the boy's like, all right, fine, I'll help you. And then the heron's like, well, can you actually, can you keep working on this aspect of yourself? Well, like, you know what I mean? It's like, there is a, a therapy. What I project onto it is like a therapization process where it is like, well, you still got to, can you just shave down this little part of it a little bit? Because like, mm -hmm. you did solve this, but like, eh, it needs to be a little better. You know, it's, eh, it's fascinating. What happens after all this, guys? I don't, I don't remember the exact next moment. The next thing is the introduction of the parakeets. That, it's that late into the movie is suddenly Absolutely like, wild. oh, so she's in there. What's in there? Oh, the, the kingdom of parakeets. Yes. First they go to the house where the yeah. parakeets start chanting edible. <laughs> He meets the parakeets. Because the parakeets are like, Red oh. parakeet, yeah, who's like, come here. Your like, aunt's yes, inside. Yes, by all means. And then they pull out silverware to eat. And they, they explained that the aunt was carrying a, with, was with child. And so they would not eat her because she, she was with child. Right. But because he is not with child, he is eatable, eatable. Sure. And they start chanting eatable is the subtitled translation that we got. And then he's like, you tricked me. Right. You just were taking your eat, but then in the moment you're like, "Yeah, man, 
They were going to, like... Yeah, what do you think was going to happen? But then he is rescued by another new character, Lady Himi. Yes. Who appears out of, like, a flaming portal and yes. get, beats them away. We and saw her earlier in the we, movie. We, right, we briefly, briefly glimpse her. Where right. she is helping to defend the Warawara yes. when they're being attacked. Yes. She's shooting fireworks out, out in the air. Don't get too excited about it, David. She takes him to this... No, I am excited. I'm and then just, what's, you know. what's interesting is that she's protecting the Warawara, but then she's her fireworks that she's using to protect them are setting fire to them. And that's right. part of it is... Uh, 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 Mahito is like... You have to stop. You're also setting fire to the war. Like, again, it's this complicated, you know, I, it's so amazing to me. Um, she appears. So should we talk about who these women are or does it not? We do, should we just get yeah, to Yeah, we can just get to it. I mean, if you're, if you're listening to the plot beat by beat, then you've either watched the film or want right, to understand. Right, it. Like, yes. you know, obviously, Kiriko is the maid. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. Like, is a younger Kiriko version Kiriko is of the, the old like woman that he dynamic, went in with. Right, yes. yes. Version of her. Yeah. Full of gumption. Mm-hmm. And then Hemi is his mother, yes. basically, mm-hmm. as a younger woman. Mm-hmm. And we, you find that out pretty early on because she keeps referring to her little sister. Right. Which is... Uh, which is uh, the, you know... Katsuko. Uh, N- Natsuko. Yeah. Natsuko, yeah. who uh, uh, Mahito is trying to find. And uh, so you're like, oh, that must be his mom. But you don't really get that solidified. I wasn't thinking about it when I watched the movie, which is the only reason I paused on whether we should. I was kind of just like, okay, another character. We'll figure this out. I was curious because they dropped references. And the whole time I was like, that's his mom, right? Right. And of course, the heron has been saying, like, your mom is waiting for you. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. But they make it very overt by the end. I mean, it's well, yeah, worth acknowledging. But the end is when, like, I felt like this movie dropped 80 pianos on me. Sure. And I was like, of course, that's yeah. what the movie is. Yeah. Right. Is like, that's how he can, like, think about his mother. I mean, I yes. it's, you know, but, uh, yeah, but, you know, for right now, she's a plucky Miyazaki helper heroine, yes. right? You know. With magical p- firepowers. Yeah. <laughs> With magical firepowers. Yeah. Um, and then he finally is led to Natsuko, who is surrounded by paper well, so spirits, basically, in a bed. The lead up to that is that then they, she knows where Natsuko is. Right. And it's like the castle of the parakeet. All these doors that like lead to other places. Yes. Again, this is all imagery. Like the paper is from Spirited Away. Like the doors, I feel like he's done that kind of imagery before. And also we didn't mention uh, Mahito uh, sleeping beneath the table protected by the dolls of the elderly oh, women. Oh, he's got this sort of yeah. little wooden, yeah. yeah. It's like, don't touch them. They're protecting you. It's almost, and it's these yeah. older women who are these generations passed down. It's so beautiful. And we've also not mentioned too that part of this, and I, I mentioned it because it's thematic, is yeah. that to make the arrow, he yeah. needs the help of uh, an old man that also yeah. lives at the estate. Right. And he trades cigarettes for the Who you say aid. is not the same old man. It might be. Oh, it is. Yeah, it is. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. You can look. I mean, he's my favorite character. The, my favorite character is just whoever the man is that waves in the first scene when Either the way, women are walking by. Whether that's his entire role or it's the same as this guy, that's your favorite character. Yes, exactly. That's the best character in all of Miyazaki's films. What do you make of this revelation of the mother? Uh, that's right, the aunt. Lying in repose. Yes. Surrounded by these paper spirits, and he tries to get her, and she's like, get away from me. Yeah. And the paper kind of like, you know, sort of bursts, shoes them out. Yeah. I don't know what to make of this. I, or at least I have not yet fully unpacked what's really going on. And again, there's no right or wrong answer, right? This is Miyazaki himself even says he doesn't know exactly what it is. My read on it is that 
so much of this is the subconscious of this boy, right? Right. And what he pines for most dearly is a connection to a mother figure. Sure. And J.D. Amato. his greatest fear mm-hmm. is rejection of that. Right. 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 Deep within this well, castle like if he inside out him. out to her and she was like, no, by the way. Like, yes. Yeah, right, if he right, was right. like, if he calls her mom and she rejects him in some way, that will be an, a second loss of mother that he has mm-hmm. experienced. Right. And so to me, part of this is that he has to go and face that fear to a certain extent. And that's also when he refers to his mother at the end of that scene, correct? He calls her mom. Isn't that the moment? Uh, he calls her mom at, right, at the right, end right. here. When, when, when he's like being shooed away, you mean? Yeah, yeah I believe yeah. so. Right. But like it, he has to face this dark moment. And, and his mother, in the form of Hemi, tells him, don't go in there. And part of that, I think, is that like childhood thing of like facing these fears that we create within ourselves. We are like, listen, I, I, this, this is weird to say, but like as an adult, I had to reckon with this just this past week at a moment where I realized like, I want to hug my family more. Okay. And there's a part of my adult self that feels like, oh, like adults don't need to hug that much. And I'm like, but that won't always be there. Well, and you're gaming so this out to, in your head in a way you don't as a child, where it is instinctual. Sure. Yeah. And so and that behavioral. And the, a part of it is there is this weird id fear of rejection there. Right. That doesn't, that's not logical. It's right. this, it's a, it's a subconscious thing. Am I wrong? I mean, I, look, clearly, uh, what? What? I, I, I had a harder time connecting dots on this movie than you did. And David has seen it twice now. But um, I I almost viewed it partially as, even with it being in his unconscious or subconscious, that part of the rejection from the aunt is that he does not, he has not gotten to know her well enough to even test having a relationship with her. Right. Right? There are, like, depths to plumb in him developing a relationship with a childhood version of his mother. Right. Because that was someone he truly knew. There has been whatever arm's length at the sort of like yeah. resistance to the idea of the aunt occupying this space. That as much as he does need someone to step in and fill the mother role, he's like resistant to letting her take that because part of accepting that is pushing his mother away from that spot in a more permanent way. Right. And it's this whole battle of like, is there a way to go back and get my mother? Can I spend time with my mother in a different form? Or am I looking towards trying to? save my aunt and preserve her in this right. place. Right. Yeah. Right. right. How do yeah, yeah. how do you I balance that? And the, yeah. Again, yeah. just to uh, just to re-underline it is like there's no right or wrong answer in any of this no, stuff. There like, is. There's clues, Easter eggs yeah. and so on and so forth. It's the, the artist is leaving us clues. That's the joy of it. Is that these are these art objects and when when an artist plums from their depth and also brings in collective artists, right? Like the collective consciousness of a group of people making something. Mm-hmm. Things are put into that work that are without explanation mm. and that are connected to this universal feeling that we have. And so each person can project onto that whatever they need. That's the point of art, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone projects onto it what they need from it in that moment. And I think that's really beautiful. Nonetheless, this is a film made by an 80-plus-year-old master yeah. in which the next scene is him going to the top of the castle or whatever and meeting an old man who, like you say, has the most most cursed Jenga tower of all time. Uh-huh. Just bad. Just poorly thought out. 
It's a bunch of fucking don't put bridges balls and in balls. There. The yeah. balls are the thing where you're just like, right. Yeah. Don't even introduce that into the vocabulary. But he's this he's this wizard, yeah, grand uncle who is family of the main character and explains that he has created this entire world. There's this backstory, by the way, that we get in a sort of, we we leave the yeah. fantasy world for a second where the maid tells the dad, mm-hmm. like, a meteor landed here. And that's like the origin. Yeah, that this, of this. castle is a giant meteor actually right. that's landed and that they built a castle around the meteor and the meteor, the castle actually is just surrounding this meteor. Um, and then also that the mother went, spent a year inside this castle just like our main character did and then returned and acted as though nothing had ever occurred inside that uh, castle. I can't tell if I am misremembering this because this film has been in the pipeline for so long without him clearly sort of expressing at early points what the movie was. I don't know if it changed or whatever. But I remember when we talked about this back when we were doing the series that part of his statement of why he was coming back and making another film was that he felt there was something he needed to like impart onto children. Yeah. Not in sort of a lesson way, but in much the same way that like so many of the films came out of, I met a girl who was my my friend's daughter uh, and Spirit of the I'll Way was influenced by her. Yes. I'll read. So the, again, Miyazaki never really says anything. Sure. But so Suzuki said, Miyazaki is making the new film for his grandson. It's his way of saying grandpa is moving on to the next world, but he's leaving behind this film. Thank you. Now, with no context, that just sounded, you were just like, oh my God, most devastating movie of all time incoming or whatever. Well, especially when the title was How Do You Live? (laughs) Right. Right. Well, here's here's another quote that I love. Yeah. The mission of my, this is him talking about this film. Yeah. The mission of my films is to comfort you to fill in the gap that might be in your heart or your everyday life. When he was asked about the answer to the Japanese title of his movie, How Do You Live? Miyazaki responded, I am making this movie because I do not have the answer. Yeah. It'd be cool if he did, though. But even the Spirited Away thing where he was like, there's something I'm seeing in this girl that I don't see in movies, and how do I, like, capture that? And do I need to put it back out there for this girl or for girls like her, what it is? It does feel like he's grappling with like things he wants to communicate to specific people. That is the way he's thinking about his legacy. Not in what is this company after I die, not how is my body of work seen, but like that the films are trying to engage in, not provide answers or morals, but engage in conversations with specific people or types of people in a way that is so much of what this final section of the film is about of like, why do you need to maintain this tower or build a new tower? I also think it's interesting in starting point and turning point, mm-hmm. um, especially around the time of How's Moving Castle and Spirit Away, around 9-11, a lot of people were ta- asking Miyazaki about it mm-hmm. and how much it inspired How's Moving Castle and all, all this stuff. Sure. He talks a lot about his belief of how children um, are not allowed the room to be children in modern era. That's a lot mm-hmm. of his interviews in the early 2000s. It's about how he thinks that like the educational early childhood system has like failed children in a, in a large way. Which is also interesting coming from someone who grew up during a world war, you know, like during wartime, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was a lot of institutional shifts that were happening right. in terms of how much was dictated by the government versus not. It's like very interesting stuff going on. Um, he's mentioned this film also of wanting to hand it down to his grandchildren is yeah. something that he's mentioned. It's not it's his children, but his grandchildren. Yeah, exactly. Well, he's, he's skipping a certain someone. Yeah. Look, the grand, 
uncle presents a giant floating stone to his son. He's like, look, that's where my power comes from. Not his son, his, uh, you know, his grand great nephew. Great nephew. Yeah. And he's like, I want you to continue my work. I need someone from my bloodline to be in charge of this. I, you know, the stone created everything. And I got to move on. Like, I'm, yeah, I'm sundowning. I'm waiting for the guy to come in and, and take I, over this shit. But he and I also, give it to someone who is from my bloodline yes. and also without malice. Yeah. Right. But he also, there's this energy to the granduncle of like, the world can be fixed. You can make it more harmonious. Like here's a, you can add yeah, one of these He's putting a tremendous pieces. amount of pressure on him. Not only is he saying, I need you to take over this, but he's saying, by the way, do what I couldn't do, which is right. solve this permanently. And what do we know about him? That he read too many books and went mad. Yep. Yes. Right. And right. so you're not trusting this guy. He's a little scary. He, too. And, and that's a really, no. that's a really yes. interesting detail. I'm glad you brought that up. They bring up how he read too many books and went mad. And then now the thing that he's passing down is, here's this lopsided tower of stones that I've made. Right. And I need someone to hand this down to who's from my bloodline and also who is like untouched and perfect without flaw right. because I'm flawed right. and I need someone that's and not that's, flawed he's, to have it. He has this line that's like, you know, worlds are living things like mold and bugs infest them. Where I'm like, you don't seem to have a great view on like yes. life. He's gone like, too deep into his own thoughts. David right. Cage I knocked my head over. Uh, as we hit hour four of this podcast. But, um, like, I know he says something along the lines of, like, look, it can be a paradise or an abomination, you know, depending on what you do. But I get the vibe from him that he's just, like, hammering dents out of the car, and he's just like, I, I can get it smooth. Like, yeah. you know, no, we're, we're close. I'd see to add some more uh, flocks of animals to eat the other right, animals that are causing trouble This is here. a great responsibility. Right. Someone needs to maintain this. He's like, I have been, I've committed my life to the pursuit of a final form, a sense of perfection that I did not hit, but don't worry, I think you can do it. What, yes, and he's like, he's which like, is he's a like, horrible thing to put on. He's like, and all you have to do is you just have to add one little thing to And then you see up. this image of a piece going in and it's not like you see the piece going in and you're like, you're right, that's what it needs. You're like, that just looks more complicated. Right, yes. you added, you created a new angle of stability that does not solve the underlying issue where, of where and this the, guy's whole life work seems to be that like all right i put this piece right here yeah and now i think it's a little more stable where and did then, the parakeets come from again we do we learn where they came from uh i think they were brought i think he brought, he them, brought in, them in and then they started reproducing because right, like the idea is like they are out of control now they're a civilization and they're like we want rights by the way like i want to yeah. conquer you sure. or something like that's the point of the parakeet king right it's Have like we been completely to him at this point? The parakeet king? No, like not really, because like it's after that confrontation that uh, uh, Mahito wakes up and then he's in this like parakeet dungeon and then they're making a giant banquet and uh, his mother, you know, his child mother is being like brought through in like a glass coffin. You only meet the parakeet king once they go up the crazy stairs, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, he's the one who's like, I'm going to bring her up the stairs and I'm going to, you know, uh, confront the the guy and get us parakeet rights or whatever it is. The yeah, and he's want. like, you two carry this thing with me. And like, this is really beautiful moment where the two parakeets get to go into like utopia with right. the parrot king. Right. And they're like, is this you? Is this like, it? Is like this it? Garden of Eden, basically? Is this yeah, the thing? Right. This is so beautiful. And the guy's like, stop looking around. Just like, stay right. on the mission here. Uh, shit is all so insane. It's so... In it's, a great way. It's And it's so beautiful and it's like... It's like the idea being she gets them in, right? Yes. They have her so they can like cross the barrier. Because they have to deliver her to right, him. Right. And so because of that, they can cross the barrier into this like utopia universe. 
Uh, right, no, they right. I'm saying they see parakeets, regular parakeets, and they're like, "Look, it's us, like our yeah. ancestors, like that's what we were." Right, right, yeah. And they're so, like, you know, they're, they're crying. <laughs> yes, and the original ancestors are like, "Oh, they're just wild animals that fly around and right. eat fruit." And then they're these creatures who have formed this entire civilization of war and feast, you know, all this the, stuff, the unnatural order, yeah, that we have imposed upon a natural world. But you don't get the impression from Grand Uncle that he's like, I love those parakeets. Like, no. What they're doing is great. No, he seems kind of disgusted with yeah, he's what like, he's you, created. Hopefully you can clear all that out. Like, Yeah, right. Right. Like a parakeet Armageddon. Oh, my God. And then... It's too much to grapple events? with, really. Uh, you know, so at this point, I am like, that's the point. This, the whole, this whole section of the movie is when I am crying... But and this started is what, to get what, emotional. I'm, what I was trying to say earlier, too, is like, I don't hit crying breakthrough points with him. I just start to spiral. Like, right. what you're saying, David, you're like, like, it's I don't, too much I, to grapple I, I don't, with. I don't, I don't, like, you're like, right, I've reached some sort of overload point. This is right. starting conversations that I cannot handle <laughs> in my own brain. But what's also beautiful to me is that during this, what I'm imagining, right? Yeah. Is Miyazaki trying to communicate all of these thoughts and this room full of animators trying to be like, like this, right? I think like this. I think this is what you're trying to say. And it becomes this, this collaborative sort of like all these people trying to help convey this message that Miyazaki himself is unsure of exactly what it means or how right. it comes out. And because of that, it's like, to me, that that's what became so beautiful is it's these parrot creatures crying, looking around at regular parrots. And I'm like, that's an animator that's like, Miyazaki's like, and then the parrots and these guys are like, yeah, okay, all right, mm -hmm. and I'll draw this parrot. And, right. and and these parrots are tall, big guys now. And he, right. They're like, yes. And he's like, then I'll do that, Miyazaki-san. Like, let's go. Like, it's like this. It is this moment where he is expressing all of these ideas that I don't think he even knows what they are. No, but they are so visceral to me. And like you said, like seeing a giant parrot crying as he looks at a normal sized parrot. Something I I can't tell you why. But I understand it. I'm like, yes, Miyazaki, I understand what you are saying. The part, the one part that kind of hit me emotionally, that maybe just speaks to me being basic as hell, and I don't know if I'm skipping ahead too much now, but when he finally puts together that she is his mother, yeah, and it realizes oh. like, Oh, I started weeping. Yes, right. That is when I was Well, hold on. Wrong. This is why I'm here. This is why I've gone through this. The whole point is to change the course of her life so she doesn't go into the fire and she doesn't die. Like, how do I back to the future her out yeah, of sure. having me, basically? Uh, although he's not consciously saying that. And her response is, no, I look I forward even. to being your right. mother. That's the moment, baby. It's, it's the arrival thing of like, I yeah, don't right. care if you're telling me how this ends and how it ends poorly. It's about the journey. Right. And, right. and how... I know we're not going to get all the time that we wanted together. Yeah. But I'd rather have that That's time not the point. than change it at all. But you saying, I mean, and in this conversation of like, do directors have conscious final films that have worked, that have landed, that have actually been planned as their final statement and received as their final statement? Miyazaki's trying to do that while also questioning if I'll make another movie after this and how many times before I thought I was doing this. But this is a film that is basically him saying like, I have no easy answers. Just right? It's a final statement movie just, of unclarity. Yeah. Just to fill in what happens in between. Yes. Sure. He goes to see the granduncle one more time. Yeah. Granduncle is like, like, come on, man. The fucking rock stones. You gotta make them into a tower. And he was like, because originally like, he's like, this, these stones are cursed. And he's like, all right, here's these stones that aren't cursed. Right. And 
Um, he's holding the stone and the the uh, little uh, totem of the maid. Right. And Mahita's that like, I'm yeah. going home. Yeah. I'm going to go home. Like, I don't want to deal with this. And the granduncle's like, you would go back to, like, you know, this terrible world? And he's yeah. like, yes. I'm going home with my mother, referring to his aunt. Yes. And he's like, yes. fine, go home. But before you do it, please stack the stones. And he's like, I don't want to. And then the parrot king shows up and is like, fucking this is it? Like, stupid, this is it's our all, fate? Yes. And so he just, like, the parrot guy puts it together. Yeah. Everything the starts the, to go crazy. The floating rocks and also crumble. We yes. missed the moment where he points to the scar on his head and explains that he is flawed. Yeah, he right. does. Right. That he's not perfect. He's full of flaw and that he's pointing yeah. to the scar on his head. And then that's when I think, is it the grand... Who is it that says, like, I have a scar too? Sure, the grand uncle. The grand uncle right. is like, oh, I have a, I have a similar scar. Uh-huh. Which is like, I'm like, yeah, we got this, like, everyone's working through these things and these right. generational things. And then, yeah, he's like, he, he he's doesn't want... He's undone by his own creations. The, the parakeets are what actually, like, blows up the world, And that's what's beautiful also is that he does... The boy doesn't want to take over the weird fucked up Jenga no. that his grand uncle has try magic. Fix your legacy and right, like yeah. maintain it or whatever. I'm gonna go home. Yes. With my my mother. My 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 new this mother. This is my right. mother right now. Yes. yes. The person who I'm I'm yes, going to say that this I'm is saying. who I want. And then they emerge with the parakeets and they cover everyone in poop. Right. Yes. Into, well, back into the real world. Big parakeet man tries to build a thing, which I is told you. Yes, yeah, he but then the whole that whole world yes. starts to collapse. It starts to collapse and the parakeet man chops it in half and it explodes and then, yeah, they got to get out of there. And then The that's whole that, tower collapses. And then that's that moment mm-hmm. where they're at the doors, which right. are the like, uh, the Beetlejuice doors that lead to different <laughs> yes. realms of reality or whatever. But it's also sort of like, does everyone go back to their timeline to where yes. they belong? Right. And that's the moment that truly, I that, that really, I mean, it yeah. was so that she would choose to go, uh, beautiful. And then he steps back out into him and then all the parakeets go with them. Mm-hmm. And, but they're regular parakeets. They're not evil, crazy, giant parakeets. Batistas. Yes. Yeah. Right. They're not big Batistas. They're not big Batistas. If only they were. Bunch of Batistas. That's it. And then it's the, the rare sort of like Miyazaki epilogue, which is the like, the war ended two years later. Right. Mm. And they went back to the city. Right. And that's... Play the song. Get the fuck out of here. Right. He says that. He gets... It's weird. He does the Ferris Bueller thing where he's like, you're still in the theater? Get out of here. He comes Um, out smoking a cigarette. But here's what I think is really fascinating. Yeah. The Wind Rises ends with a character literally being like, go, live life. Like, you know... Yeah, like maybe your work is going to be used for evil, but like the best you can do is the best you can do. And like you just got to like live and horrible things. And you have to just like keep living. Sure. And this film ends not with a character telling us that, but characters doing that. Mm. Mm. Sure. Just continuing on. I think in The Wind Rises, he's he's less sure about it. Yes. Yeah. And here he's like, to me, what I got, and again, there's no right or wrong answer. Miyazaki himself doesn't even really know what... But to me, what I got was this sense of like, you just enter into this world with all of this baggage and flaws and scars that you're going to pick up along the way and things that will get in your way, but also drive you. And it's this complicated thing. Enter into a world that is overwhelming, that is on the verge of toppling over and collapsing. Yeah. And you try to create some sort of structure and order. 
And there is a hope that you can pass that down and that will be meaningful. Right. But part of the process of growing up is learning that you can choose to go your own way and accept or reject or take with you any aspects of that journey. And there's some things you can change. There's some things you can't. But your only option is to continue living your life and not letting those things take over. I think there's another thing too, which is, is your life's work being able to communicate the answers that you have spent your life working toward? Or is it being able to express the journey of you trying to work through these questions, which in its way provides people the answers of feeling less alone, that this is basically the underlying, like the purest state of the human condition. Yes. And so for all hands to come together to make this film, yeah, which is this person, an older person who has said publicly, everyone in my life, all of my family members died at age 80 and I'm 83 or whatever. 82. 82. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. For him to be like, lay hands on this idea mm-hmm. and help me tell this, that everyone is allowed to mo- move forth and do what they need to do. And I don't need to hand down. It's, it's, it's a flawed idea to think that I can create some structure that will solve the, all the problems of the world and hand that down. Mm-hmm. I think it's such a beautiful idea. And what it brings me back to is the ending of Nausicaa. Mm. Where... The end of Nausicaa is that someone can be so pure and so perfect and so connected to the earth that the earth will, in kind, resolve all of the issues and create this stasis and this handshake that will solve the problems. Because it's his way of thinking about the environment in so many of his movies. Right. And Miyazaki has often said that he wishes he didn't end Nausicaa that way. Mm. Sure. And I would say the ending of this film... Is how he wishes he had ended Nausicaa? Is, to, is the exact opposite of that. Sure. It's not that if you're pure enough and right. good enough that all will the work out will and be resolved. Right. He's telling a story here where it's like, no one is pure enough or good enough. That's part of living Nothing life. Nothing ever gets is that, resolved. Yes. Yeah. Part of life is being scarred and being imperfect. And that's part of it. Yeah. And I think that's so beautiful to then see that theme transition through his work, having just watched them all chronologically, it is such a beautiful, beautiful career that he's built that tells this story. Uh, I often think about how people will sometimes criticize filmmakers. uh, And this is a feeling that I have uh, globally across across all art. People criticize filmmakers for making the same film over and over again. It's like, that's just the same movie. They just keep making the same movie over and over again. Those are my favorite types of filmmakers. Because to me, that means that there's something inside themselves that's compelling them to tell that story. Yeah. And it's something that they're wrestling with. And every film, every chapter of that struggle is them hopefully learning a new thing or testing a new theory around that. By the way, when sometimes people will suggest, why haven't they covered blank? Have they ever considered doing a miniseries on blank? The people that David and I disregard the most as they would not be interesting to talk about are the people who do not do that. Which is not to say the people who make wildly different types of films. It's the people who make films that might seem interesting in how could all this come out of one person, but they don't, by and large, feel like they are honest extensions of what that person is going through. They are jobs. And perhaps jobs well done. Right. You know? But box office game, this movie's going to get its (laughs) ass kicked by Beyonce. Yeah, it's going to be a rough box office game. I was trying to think of the best way to do that joke, and there's not any movie opening against this movie. Yeah, Miyazaki's going to go into his like Oprah opening weekend of Beloved. <laughs> I just ate a bunch of mac and cheese and got depressed that Beyonce was beating me. I really thought I had number one in the U.S. locked. 
Oh man! But isn't it such a beautiful career that he's built? What? A, what no, I think that guy fucking created. sucks. What are you talking about? I love me. I'm just. Yes, I agree with you. After watching the movie, I was so overwhelmed. Yes. By this I, being the end, I was not really overwhelmed by this being the end. I was relieved that the film was so meaningful, and that I already had so many feelings about it because I was a little worried, just of like, oh, God, like you know. He's never made a movie I disliked, but like, mm -hmm. what if this feels minor or kind of messy, messy in sure. a way that doesn't really like, you know, excite anything in me. And instead I was like, I can't stop thinking about all the stuff bubbling in that movie. I think this is a beautiful, I think this is like, it, it's not, it's funny because yesterday I was talking to Ben Griffin. I was like, oh, maybe we should talk about like our Miyazaki rankings. And I'm like, I have no interest in Miyazaki rankings yeah, actually. No, because to me, it's a body of work. Six. I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know. To me, it's the, and watch them chronologically. It's, it tells such a story. Seeing all the protagonists change and evolve, getting to this point is mm -hmm. so I have a amazing. I'm not looking I know you do. Yeah, of course yeah, I do. That's your job is to have that it's kind not of my stuff. Job. Yeah, I'm it sick. Is. I'm sick. You're your job, sick. I forgot your job is being sick. Your job okay. is a sicko, full-time sicko. We need to end this episode. Ben, how long have we been going? I shudder to ask. And obviously we took a couple breaks. Yeah, I'm going to guess that we're at about three hours and 10 minutes. Okay. All right. So, you know, longest-ish episode ever, but not quite the, the record breaker. In the zip code. And not that we were you know, aiming for breaking any records. No. Like, I, I, we put some ads in there, you know. God. I also don't feel like we're stretching. I think we're just talking about the thing. There's so much we haven't talked about. I mean, it's incredible. Here's one thing. Can I Violator, add? Later, we didn't touch on him at all. <laughs> I felt at moments <laughs> the dynamic between the boy and the heron reminded me of Spawn and Violator. And I don't... It's not a box I want to open this late in the episode. The kind of thing that you can get in a lot of trouble for saying because it's too bold and too intelligent. I would say ben, one of if the best... If they cancel me, I'll go to Daily Wire and I'll announce it every day. I would say one of the best Leguizamo performances. Yes. No, it's 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 funny. It's funny and it's warm. It's a warm, inviting performance. Can I say something that really interests me as someone who has gone through a lot of career ennui we recently. We have to be done. I'm not saying that in an aggressive way. Yes, I'm you are. I'm saying in a practical yes. way. You're we holding a to gun up to his I'm head. I'm incredibly hungry and we have another episode to record and I have to be home in time for my kid. I'm just, I'm just saying all of that stuff on the record. Future Boy Conan, age 37. Okay. What do you think? That was his first directorial debut. Oh, I'm 37. 37 years old. Mm. I'm 37. Yes. Should I start my career as a beloved Your animator? Miyazaki year. It really actually made me feel good to realize that because right. we... Because you think of him as being old, but it's like, right, but that's his storied career. He start, must have started when he was 18 years old. And it's like, no. And there's a lot of, you know, the adulation of like the Wunderkind, whatever. Right. And he it's like... His, he had his slut era too. I'm, I'm sorry? Imagining like Miyazaki yeah. in his 20s being like, ah, party, I'll well, animate when I'm 30. It's funny because in starting point, you know, he does all these essays where he's in his 20s, he's working. He's just a TV animator at that right. point. Yeah. He just and he's it. like throwing fucking shade at Disney. And he's like yeah, really yeah. aggressive. And you're like, yeah, this is someone who's 28 who's just like. It's also a bad era for Disney. They're yeah, kind and of, he's, and he's like, them when they're down. Yeah. And he's a career animator who's just like, yeah, that's that's bad animation. And actually that's bad, you know. But they're like his sloppy Tumblr thoughts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 100%. He's just throwing, throwing strays. So I love that he started his career at 37, 38 years old. I think that's really wonderful. I think he lived, it, it says in his Wikipedia page that he lived in an 80 square foot apartment when he was in his 20s working as an animator. Mm. It's pretty small. Yeah. Goes for like 10,000 a month in New York City. So we can't even play the box office game because the box office, well, I guess the 
did it come out last weekend or did it just the thing is it did eventually have this weird limited release right on Thanksgiving weekend well, they, they, but it comes yeah. out officially on the 4th right they did there was a, a like a one or two day IMAX run and then there was a limited run and then it's going wide in a couple of days from the time we're recording this it's its personal results is not listed, but okay. the Thanksgiving box office was number one, a film starring a friend of the pod. Uh, Hunger Games. Hunger Games. The Cold. Ballad of Songs and Snakes. Songbirds and Snakes. Fuck. Hunger Games, You'll the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yeah. Have you, has anyone seen apart from me? I'm still hungry. I have not yet fed hey, my appetite. I think we have, we can't underestimate how funny it is to add the Ballad of Buster Scruggs as a subtitle. That is a really good point. Hunger Games, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Because we don't think about that as a subtitle. Buster Scruggs also would do well in the Hunger Games. The guy's a dead shot. Well, but he ultimately was undone by his own vanity and his commitment to songs. But you know how for a while it's the, the story bit was of always... many a Hunger Games competitor. Yeah. <laughs> They're always fucking singing. That's true. <laughs> you're like, you're in an arena, god Fuck, it. you're right. Buster Scruggs <laughs> was built for the Hunger Games. <laughs> that kind of like hack thing is like something too, Electric Boogaloo. Yeah, this is what I'm saying. Right, right. Hypercube. You know, uh, yeah, that's our X, own hack version. Y, but you're yes. like, what if the entire, what we know of as its own proper title is in fact... Good fodder for other sequel subtitles. <laughs> anyway, Hunger Games, Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, so good. And just the kind of thing where you're like, yes, we're cooking with, you know, this is better. Like, let's go back to this. A just, better time of franchises, you're yeah, saying? Yeah, it takes place yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, prequel. It's prequel. It's, prequel. <laughs> it's the adventures of young Donald Sutherland. Correct. Number two at the box office. Uh, you know, a gigantic epic. Griffin. Napoleon. Napoleon. Colon, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Right. Uh, yes, he made Buster Scruggs the governor of Italy. It didn't work out for him, obviously. Mm -hmm. Not a very a whole job. movie about a dessert? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Number three at the box office. Uh, one of the most embarrassing flops in recent memory Wish. for a studio that's just been releasing embarrassing flops. Colin, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. <laughs> They're now trying to edit him in. Just anything to give them some juice. Juice the numbers. Scruggs is in it? Yeah. I can't remember if it was you guys or someone else. I Probably a parasite was talking about how the end of Wish, they have like all the pencil drawings of the original Disney characters. Mm. Yeah. Okay. As if to be like, and you know, Wish is now a part of that. Right. Wish is the Little Mermaid. Wish is Snow heavy White. on that. Yeah. Right? Wish is Pixar theory, the movie. Right. It is, what if these are all connected? Really? Yeah. I have no idea what Wish is. Where, does, where do like, wishes come from? All these Disney characters have wished for things. It's like, tying together the wish of hers. Like literally, she becomes the fucking wish star. It doesn't matter. Okay. Number four, the it box matters. office. It matters a lot. Don't say that. We can end the episode, and I know you want to get this over with, but don't pretend it doesn't matter. Are you guys not hungry? Genuine question. I'm starving. I told you I'm hungry for Hunger Games. So okay. you're saying, do the water people live next to the fire people? Uh, They're different neighborhoods. It's, yeah, it's different of, neighborhoods. Also, the like Same the water city. people seem to live in like skyscrapers. I don't know. Yes. Are Number there four, lightning people. No, no, that'd be great. That would be a great idea. Bring them in. Lightning's not an element. That's the problem. Well, by the their cloud rules, people get lightning when they're angry. True. Like if the team they Wait, root for in Skyball. What are the fails. elements? Air, water, earth, and fire. So it's clouds, dirt. What about hearts? I was gonna say that's Captain Planet Erasure. No. Yeah, well, that's fine. Number four, the box office, an animated film that made almost as much as Wish in its second weekend. Uh, it's it Trolls World Tour. No. Trolls Band Together. Thank you. World Trolls Tour was the second Ballad one. Of Buster Scruggs. I have yet to see them band together. I, I texted this to also... you, but you sang the Disney's calamitous year. If February, Quantumania comes out and people are like, P, you look at this fucking atomic bomb. And now Disney's like, 
if we could have something gross half a billion dollars, that would be we would be fine. thrilled. 100%. How are we having multiple movies end like, up less than 100? And to have Leo eat their lunch. Leo is so good. I watched Leo twice with my niece and nephew. Leo rules, right? It's good. It's fucking got jokes. Number five at the box office, a horror film that already has a sequel announced. Thanksgiving. Yeah. Colin, the Battle of Buster Scars. It's probably in there somewhere. In part two, yeah. Number six, the Marvels. You saw the Marvels. I did. Ben saw it 50 times. Exactly 50 times. Really? Uh, number seven, The Holdovers, which has been doing surprisingly crisp. Maybe not surprisingly, but uh, a healthy business. Yeah, which, which is, is why nice. I'm excited that it's going to VOD in two days. Yeah, whatever. No one even notices. Uh, Everything sucks. Okay. Number eight, yeah, The Eras Tour, which made uh, tons of money. Uh, good for Taylor. Maybe my she, only good choice in the Vulture Taken a lot of L's yeah. <laughs> recently. Uh, number nine, Saltburn. Haven't seen it. It's a movie for silly billies, in my opinion. <laughs> is it like in the Salt Bay universe? Yeah. If only. Yeah. Finally, something salt connected that's worse than Salt Bay. I has will been say, created. we saw Boy in the Heron and Angelica. They proudly advertise the collectible salt burn cup while supplies last. I've seen two movies of Angelica in the last week. It seems the supplies Spots have run holding. out. <laughs> oh, no, they're, no, they're gone. It's like a buddy journey between Salt Bay and Ken Burns. Kramer's Hen is a horror <laughs> film. Where Ken Burns gives Salt Number Bay haircut horror advice. Film. We have to start our next That's where the haircut came minutes. from. He salted it. Number 10 is a horror film. It's a different horror film? Yeah, huge hit of the year. It's a huge hit of the year? Yep. Uh, fuck. It's, Gen Z loves it. It's not Freddy. It is Freddy. It's Freddy. It's Five Nights at Freddy. Number Colin 11, Next Goal Wins. Colin the Bell and Buster Scruggs. Next Goal Wins. Doing, doing great. Great. Number 12, Priscilla, which has made $20 million. Yeah, also that movie rules. And But it's also like a movie where you're like, you know, that's that's a tough hang of a movie yeah. intentionally. Yes. And like, like, God bless him for making 20 million bucks. Yeah. No, Jeez. well done. Anyway. One um, of the best films of the year. JD, you know I love you. Love you too. Uh, and I'm excited to record another episode with you. I know. This, in about yeah. 20 minutes. What do you think about Ben and I? You're my favorites. You are. But you don't love us? I love you very much. Okay, thank you. It's important to say sometimes it's important to hug the people you love in your life sometimes. I'm big Love hug. you guys. Love you. Thanks for coming to talk. Uh, my, my stomach is actually going like, like mm. this. Uh, the thing I want to say, like but I did a buttered bagel eight hours ago. It's sure. like all the food I've eaten today. Yes. I had banana bread. The wow. bit I want to say, but I didn't. But is anytime you mentioned Goro Miyazaki, I imagine Goro from Mortal Kombat. I do too. Mm, like, and I, that's I, I. Yes, funny. I do. And it's funny to imagine. He's the one with the multiple arms. Yeah, yeah. That's a signal for you to wrap us up. Oh sure, Ben. I just wanted to say, love you guys. Love, love you. Too. Hey Ben, love you. Uh, thank you all for listening, and we love most of you, our listeners. Ninety percent. Ninety percent. And if you're wondering if you're part of it, tell yourself you are. Tell yourself you're part of the 90. Uh, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty, our associate producer, helping keep the show running. Thank you to AJ McKeon, Alex Barron for our editing. JJ Birch for doing nothing this week. Pat Reynolds and Joe Fuck Holland. you, JJ. Fuck you, JJ. <laughs> JJ will not text us four times in the hour after this episode drops going, I, I mean, I thought it was funny and I did laugh, but I want to make sure you guys aren't actually angry at me, right? Sorry, JJ. Yeah, and also, JJ, fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> Thank you, too. Yeah, you rock. Lee <laughs> Montgomery in the like American it. novel for a theme song. <laughs> what? You were just like, you got to tell people that they love each other. Yeah, yeah. 
And like within 20 seconds, you're just going off on your audience, <laughs> oh, your, you. your fellow coworker. JJ has to get knocked out of bag. But by the way, uh, uh, Joe Bowen, Pat Reynolds, we love you. Um, you can go to blankcheck.com for some links to some real nerdy shit, including our Patreon Blankcheck special features where, hey, we're talking the walk, something that's going to happen right after this and will definitely be normal. It's going to be so <laughs> fucking normal. This was no bits. Oh, baby. Wait for that saved. one. And as always, just kidding, AJ. We love you. We love you. You have a fucking stinky piece of shit. <laughs> what the energy love shit? You, but sincerely, with 100% <laughs> honesty, fuck you. Now and we, we say you. that with love. Yeah, we love you. We say that with love. Love you guys. You motherfuckers. Just do that all day. <laughs>